Testing, testing, one, two, three, 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 three. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you for joining us at the Backlick Cinema Podcast, where we're talking about the movies of yesteryear. This is the 60th episode. Thank you for downloading or streaming. We really appreciate it. And the reason we started this show was to strengthen the bond between my son, Zach, and me. So we watched movies that I love when I was growing up in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And I'm going to tell you what Zach thought about those classics. And, you know, we just watched a movie yesterday, and it was pretty awesome. If you like this show, then rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser.com, or your favorite podcast app. And finally, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can find the details in the show notes. So I'll probably mention it in the middle of the show. Who knows what could happen on this streaming service? Now, ladies and gentlemen, once again, if you've heard last week, then you know this week that we have a very special guest, a guest who's has a who has an enthusiasm for the paleontological, the, the enthusiasm for ancient creatures that walked Earth that disappeared roughly around 65 million years ago, but then fly around us still today. This awesome guest has deemed to arrive here on this show to grace us with his presence. I bring to you the host, or I should say, one of the hosts of Jurassic Pod, my very special guest, Luke Ferris. Welcome, wow. Luke. Thank wow. you for joining us. Zoe, that is a great introduction. Uh, I'm a Detroit Pistons fan, and that felt like I was being introduced at the Palace of Auburn Hills in 2005 uh, by George Mason. I'm ready to go. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you so much. Uh, it's funny, right? Because I meant to do some background research so I can butter up a little bit. So all of that you heard, that was just off at the top of my head. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to have to make something up. <laughs> it, was, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. Yeah. Uh, if there's, if there's anything that, if anything they might want to download this podcast for is for these great introductions. <laughs> probably just click off right after this. So uh, I have with me a tablet of some queries I've written down because right. I believe our audience are, is, uh, is curious about you. They want to know about the man, the myth, and the legend of Luke Ferris. So we mentioned that you are one of the co-hosts of Jurassic Pod. So all of these questions are extremely obvious and basic questions that anybody on the street, if they didn't know anything about you, if, they, if all they knew about you was that you were a host of a Jurassic Park uh, podcast, these are the questions that they would want to know. You, yeah. Right? <laughs> no, nothing fancy. Okay, no do... math. As long as there's no right. math. There's no, no math. math. Good. No childhood trauma questions. Okay. Nothing about uh, your education. Nothing like that. Uh, I'm not asking about your SAT scores. Just <laughs> basic questions. Low. They were low. That, that's right. <laughs> Mine too. We have something in common. <laughs> I don't even remember. Think I purchased it from my memory. It's not. It's not like I'm done. I just don't test well, and some of the questions are confusing. But anyway, uh, let's get into it. Did you always have an interest in dinosaurs? Yeah, I think like a lot of kids growing up dinosaurs were always something we were interested in and that's ties a lot into jurassic park the movie came out in 93 now it's interesting because i'm probably a little bit older than zach maybe a little bit younger than than you Zoe. i'm not going to ask your ages but jurassic park was kind of part of this revamp of the dinosaur pa passion and excitement 
that a lot of kids growing up had. And I know I had it. Um, I would say dinosaurs have always intrigued me, but they're, they're tied to these movies. I can't really think about dinosaurs without thinking about these movies. There, there wasn't necessarily a separate paleontologist passion. It was, I love these movies and therefore I love dinosaurs. Okay. So what was your first exposure to like these, the, the, the story dinosaurs or the, the, the dinosaurs that are, that's in popular media, like books or films or TV shows? What was your first exposure? I think probably the first Jurassic Park. I can't remember exactly when I saw it. It was probably on VHS. Um, I remember watching the first one with my friends. Uh, they had a little attic at their grandparents' house uh, that we, you know, kind of hang out in. And I had an old VCR and we would rewatch the first Jurassic Park over and over again. And it, it wasn't air conditioned. So it'd be like in the middle of summer, it'd be like right. 100 degrees in there. You know, we'd be playing wrestling, shooting mini hoop, and then we'd be watching Jurassic Park over and over and over again. Uh, so I think that's like my first memory that just stands out of just loving this movie, the excitement of the dinosaurs, uh, the excitement of the characters and just living in this idea in this world that dinosaurs were back. Right, right. You know, it's funny. I, I suspected as much. And the reason I suspected it, one, is because of your age. And, and two, uh, is because um, I don't think that you would probably be exposed to the earlier, uh, like, representations of dinosaurs. Like, you're fortunate and you've got a much more accurate depiction of dinosaurs. I mean, still a lot of it is wrong. Like, uh, Velociraptor really doesn't look like that. It's, uh, yeah. it's the one that they have in a movie is more closely related to a turkey raptor. But then Velociraptors really what didn't capture the imagination of like my generation, like before Jurassic Park had no idea that, you know, of the Velociraptor. We were all about the T-Rex, the Allosaurus, the Brontosaurus or whatever they're calling it nowadays. The, <laughs> <laughs> the, the Stegosaurus uh, and, uh, you know, those kinds, but uh, re didn't really pay attention to like the smaller dinosaurs. So um yeah, that that is that's where uh, where I where I first saw him. So, I think my first exposure was probably King Kong, the yeah. nineteen whatever was nineteen twenty or whatever that was the yeah. one, the one where Universal didn't copyright King Kong and lost to Nintendo when they created Donkey Kong. So that one, so <laughs> big mistake for them yeah. to not to not. Right, right, those rights up. No, but, but we have got we got Donkey Kong, so right. it, it was the, for the good of the world. Right, and what it was, they they just didn't think about filing the copyright. I guess no. somebody slipped up. But anyways, in, in that movie, that's uh, you saw like he was fighting uh, Tyrannosaur, and then there were others that that followed, um, and they were all stop motion. So those were, mm -hmm. and then those were the ones where the tails of dragon, and they didn't use any science based. Uh, any science-based information to depict their dinosaurs. All they knew was that they were big and and that they, they kind of look like lizards and they probably roared. So that's that's all they use. And I, what I appreciate about Jurassic Park in the movie series that they use a lot of science in order to depict the science, the dinosaurs. Some of it they got wrong and some of it we've learned more about dinosaurs now. Like before uh yeah. they they weren't really sure of the coloration of the sin. So Jurassic Park just went with what is normally depicted. And now they're like, uh, scientists are saying, well, the Velociraptor was probably covered in feathers, right? <laughs> and uh, there's still an ongoing debate of whether or not uh, the T-Rex actually hunted and that sort of thing. But yeah, Jurassic Park really did do more with science than any other 
movie that came before it. So there was also a, a television show called Land of the Lost. I don't know if you've seen the yeah. television. Yeah, yeah. That, that was kind of the precursor to probably like what, what a lot of people know for like the dinosaur genre. Uh, absolutely. And it was, a, it was a television show. It was basically a puppet show. So the, the dinosaurs were miniature and you can kind of tell that they were miniature and they were like blown up on a green screen or whatever. But that was one of my favorite shows because of the dinosaurs. And I think th- those were the main two main inf- influences and, and also the Transformers. So- <laughs> of course, of course. Well, yeah, it's interesting because most cinema or television, it was that model. It was either you had puppets or, or some sort of animatronic and you just were shot at, you know, they were miniatures and you just shot it wide. Right. Like whether what I mean, that that's kind of how Godzilla was created. But right. that's what everyone was used to when you had scaled creatures that was what you were supposed to do that was just what everyone they would they did it for 20 years right from you know transformers power rangers like godzilla they all did that kind of style of shooting right it wasn't until steven spielberg and his team kind of combined the technology with the practical effects and and made something totally new that which changed cinema in 1993 that and they also use CGI, which was very good. It really yeah. uh, it progressed and it really stands out. And also, um, you mentioned Godzilla. That was another obvious influence. It got all the Godzilla. Oh, and, the yeah. gods, and, the, and the difference between something like Land of the Lost and Godzilla was the they scaled it to a person wearing a Godzilla costume. Right. Yeah. So everything that they used for scale was pretty big. Like uh, there were cars the size of your your hand or something like that. But in Land of the Lost, the the models that they use for like the dinosaurs was not man size it was like an action figure size so that's how you could tell when you saw the <laughs> film that these are tiny dinosaurs being made to look big but um also so obviously your your passion is Jurassic Park but were there some other like projects that you like that featured dinosaurs yeah I think I think the Godzilla was always something that fascinated me I grew up watching you know, the original films from the, you know, fifties and sixties, uh, it, they would always be in the kids section at the, uh, the video store. So anytime you had that, like free video kids video, if you rented one, I would always get one of the Godzilla movies. Cause I just loved watching them. So that was kind of always an influence for me as far as the dinosaur, dinosaur genre. And then I gotta be honest, land before time, you know, <laughs> I got to shoot straight with you. That that was a big deal in my household. Those cartoons, Land Before Time with uh, Littlefoot. So I remember right. those being a big deal, like family movie, but also very dramatic and emotional. Uh, and then I think the, another thing that was kind of I remembered was a big deal. And it kind of was a it followed Jurassic Park was when Disney came out with that movie Dinosaur, that animated movie that was it was a 100 percent CGI movie animated movie um which is kind of the precursor to what they're doing now with lion king and jungle book uh but that's another one that i remember that stood out to me but it it was always jurassic park for me right 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 uh it's funny that you mentioned uh dinosaur i don't remember dinosaur but i do remember when you mentioned it there was a tv show i think that it was called dinosaur and it was basically it's supposed to be like the Flintstones, except they're dinosaurs. I don't <laughs> yeah. know if you've seen that. <laughs> and then they had a, uh, it's on Disney Plus right now. And so they had a, uh, what you call it? My favorite part was they had a baby dinosaur and he would always beat the father's head and say, not the father. And uh, that was <laughs> pretty awesome. He was like, not the, no, he would say, not the mama, not the not mama. The mama. Like, 
it's either the mama or not the mama. It was like your, your two, uh, the two categories that he would put creatures in, right? <laughs> and that's on Disney Plus. Wow. I think Man, that is. Yeah, I'm 90 sure it's on Disney. They're Plus. like Disney Plus has they're bringing all the vaults out, so you like you can remember all these like shows that were relevant in your childhood and cartoons. Right, right. They're, they're letting everybody see them now. Right, they have the X Men from the 90s. They've oh, got so Spider Man and his Amazing Friends is one of my favorite cartoons. I'm doing a rewatch of that right now. So yeah, yeah, they, they they've opened the vaults. So uh, moving right along. Um, so I, I think I already know the answer to this question of whether you considered doing any actual paleontological research <laughs> I, yeah that, so that, that was gonna be a, that was gonna be a no for me because right, I, right. I very quickly in science class i realized hmm i can't remember the like the geological eras uh it's funny because i do a jurassic park podcast and i have a hell of a time remembering what kind of dinosaurs what name so my right. co-host is the one who like i'll be like the dinosaur that does this and he'll fill in the name so right right very quickly i i learned that paleontology wasn't going to be or archaeology i i also i on the video i that we're resuming right now i have indiana jones in the background yeah, so I'll see. uh i learned very quickly that uh being an archaeologist or a paleontologist even though i thought they were really cool jobs based right. off of my <laughs> cinematic experience i knew very quickly at a young age i wasn't going to be able to do them as a profession unfortunately so. right right it's it's a lot of hard work it's a lot of tedious but surprisingly there is a lot of drama in uh in the in paleontology paleontological past right so they're yeah. like competing scientists and they're like they're digging up bones and and some scientists stealing bones from another i had listened to this audiobook that talked about famous rivalries and i forgot most of the details but some of it revolved around like how bones fit on a dinosaurs and one paleontologist put like the head on the wrong end of the dinosaur and it started this huge debate <laughs> and they were like fighting for decades over who is right and uh, so yeah it, it, even though it's a lot of it is boring uh it, there's a lot of debate among what the dinosaurs are actually like yeah and that that's a really great point because a lot of what the jurassic park films there's it centers on that scientific debate and i think that's really interesting that you brought up that point because they're studying bones and if you think about it you're you're studying bones and fossils there's going to be so much subjective opinion over 165 million years of what actually happened. Uh, and it's something that the Jurassic Park movies always do a good job of bringing in from like the real world of paleontology is that debate and conversation of what is what did they actually do? Why did they actually do it? And especially in the books, they go go heavy into that. Yeah, the I've read, I think I've read both of those books and I have no memory of the details. So I've, I've read both Jurassic Park and The Lost World. But the thing about it is that uh, he gets, I love Michael Crichton because of the deep dives he does yeah. into the uh, in, into the science in his book. It's like he really does his homework. He ate his Wheaties. He, he's done all the right things. <laughs> yeah. And when he and he brings it into the narrative. So when, and and it's a really good narrative despite all. It's not like so. I don't know if you read Moby Dick. Yeah. I've, you have read it. Yes. Oh, okay. So I've never. I've not actually read it. I've listened to it as an audiobook. And then when you you start to realize it's not actually a narrative. It's not actually a story. Basically what it is, it's a treatment or it's a, it's a diary of a man who had once gone whaling. So it's basically a lesson on how whalers do their job and it's long and tedious and boring. And I, was yeah. like, and I, I can see how people uh, consider it a classic. 
but it's more like it's not because of the story it's because of everything you learn about whaling which is like well we're not really doing that anymore (laughs) but (laughs) not 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 the thing that most people are interested in but i think it's a great point because Crichton, the writer of both jurassic park and the lost world balances those two concepts of he provides a lot of this detail but also makes it exciting and you feel like you understand it even though like i said i I wasn't really good at science growing up but what reading those books you feel like Oh, I know what's going on. You right. learn things, but it's not boring or tedious. It fits well with propelling the story forward and the action forward, which is such a great thing to have in a book because it makes right. you want to turn the page. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's, he's a very good uh, story, storyteller. I, unfortunately, I've forgotten all of the books that of Michael Crane. I probably have to go for a reread of, of the ones that I've already read. Just to, yeah, they're, they're, like, they're good rereads for sure. Right. And like, if you ask me which Michael Crichton's books I've read, I was like, I do not know. I read <laughs> Jurassic Park and The Lost World. And those are the only ones that I remember. It's like, did I read Spear? I, I don't know if I read Spear. Did I know that I didn't read The Andromeda Syndrome. I know I didn't read okay. that. Uh, but those, that's all I can tell you. I can't remember the other ones that he's wrote or the ones that he's written that I really liked. So looking down at my questions. Oh, I think I asked you that question about... Uh, Oh, no, I didn't ask you this question. Okay, because I know that Jurassic Park is your main uh, thing. And um, and that's what your podcast is around. It. But, you know, you have a finite number of movies and perspective to do on Jurassic Park. So, and I, I know that you've talked about on, I think, your season finale about going beyond Jurassic Park. So what have you considered beyond Jurassic Park? What projects, yeah. what stories? Yeah, that's a great question. And we started this journey. I, I love, always loved Jurassic Park, but I started this journey because my co-host and, and good friend Mike has always loved Jurassic Park. It's his number one franchise, like his number one thing. And I always thought that was interesting because I would say I'm more of a Star Wars, Indiana Jones, you know, I, you know, Batman fan. Like there's other big franchises that I think are more popular. And so we started this journey because I really wanted to dive deep into why the Jurassic Park films and the franchise, one, is still popular. Like they're still making movies. There's a movie coming out this summer. Uh, and two, why, why do people love it? What's the real thing? Because they're a unique franchise where they have a book source material, but there's no real action hero. There's no big hero storyline. There's no real ba- big baddie. Uh, and so we started this journey to rewatch the movies uh, and building up to Dominion. Um, and so we're, we're going to, this podcast is probably going to have a a finite ending. Um, but in the next season that's coming up in season two, as we build up to dominion, one thing that we want to do is is go back to the films that inspired Jurassic park, um, specifically with Steven Spielberg. So looking at his, his film Canon, uh, and and jaws is definitely going to be one that is going to come up. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, Indiana Jones um, and other films that have kind of inspired or have been inspired by Jurassic Park. So that's what we're going to do in season two, because we've had a really good journey diving deep into the films and the fan community of Jurassic Park. I think now we're going to go and widen our view and look at what's been impacted by this franchise and then why are they still making these movies leading up to the new movie coming out this summer? Okay, that sounds great. I I see... uh king kong in your future i see godzilla i see yes uh <laughs> um, I, and i maybe. love the king kong movies and we talk right. a, we talk a lot about godzilla and king kong because jurassic park they've 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 towed the line of of being basically what 
what Godzilla and King Kong are, which are these big, they're monster movies. They're classic mm-hmm. cinema monster movies. Jurassic Park toes the line there. It doesn't fully commit, but there's moments in the franchise where they commit to that. Um, right. So we'll definitely talk about those because I love, and I love uh, Sc- uh, Skull Island or uh, Kong Skull Island that came out a couple of years ago. I, I really love that movie. I was, it was one of those movies I was shocked and surprised how much I loved it. Um, but yeah, those are definitely going to be in the future. I think one of my, you mentioned Skong, uh, Kong Skull Island. So I think one of my favorite scenes with Kong actually happened in Godzilla versus Kong. The opening scene with Kong, like when oh, he's yeah. waking up and he's like yawning and he goes and gets a drink of water and, it, you know, takes his tree off and he scratches the back with it. <laughs> hey, was- yeah, I love that scene, too, because you're that sets it up that you're generally lean. I would say most people you're leaning towards Kong as the hero figure in that movie, uh, even though we learned later on that there's there's other antagonists. But um, yeah, I love that scene, too. It's it sets up kind of the it's the calm before the storm in that movie, because there's a lot of storm literally in figure. Right, right, right. So uh, there was a I and I'm guessing that like if you take a deep dive, you can find either monster movies or, well, and when I mean monsters, I mean giant monsters that that would are inspired by dinosaurs. Or, because I'm pretty sure that all giant monster, like, uh, what do they call them? Uh, uh, I, I had the name in my mouth just now. Just had it. And then and then it, it evaporated. So <laughs> That's okay. It's gone. <laughs> it's gone. It'll come back later on. Uh, it's what the Japanese call giant monsters. But anyway. Oh, um... See, there you go. I got you. I now, got now you. you got me. It's on the edge of my mouth. <laughs> I'm good at that. Uh, we'll, it starts we'll, with a K. It starts with a K. Does Kaiju. It Kaiju. Thank you. There you go. There you Kaiju. go. We got there together. Got right. So we got there together. That was a team effort. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. So I'm sure there are, uh, there are most monster movies are uh, or Kaiju are inspired by, by uh, dinosaurs. So I, I'm thinking that you'll probably see a lot of uh, stop motion from the i don't know from the 50s uh in in your uh in your show yes so yeah i I, i'm looking forward to listening to more episodes so um are you excited about the new movie dominion yes i'm very excited and i would say i'm more excited than a lot of the community that i've talked to i think a lot of the community uh, that are really the diehards. Like I'm, I love Jurassic Park, but through this process, I've met some diehards. Like if you listen to the Jurassic Park podcast hosted by Brad Jost, I mean, he's, we call him the patron saint of Jurassic Park. I mean, this dude, he is living and breathing and there's, there's a lot of great fans out there, but I think they're nervous similar to how star Wars fans were nervous about when the new reboots, whatever the, the sixth, seventh, and eighth, nine, yeah. I would have—they're they're sequels. They're sequels. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. The, the the sequels after the sequels. Right. How they were nervous. There was a nervousness ahead of those. I think there's a nervous nervousness ahead of this film because they're bringing back the original cast because the stakes are so high. Because basically, spoiler alert: dinosaurs are roaming the earth now. Yeah, they let the, the cages. They let them out of the cage. Like it, it, it's about to go crazy. I'm excited because they're bringing back some of the the human characters that have been missing in the Jurassic World movies. I've always struggled with feeling a connection to some of the characters in Jurassic World. Bringing back the three main characters from the the original film, I think, is going to help 
kind of lift the spirits emotionally and add more stakes to the movie, which I think is what's been missing in the Jurassic World movie is having the character stakes to be a little bit higher where you're actually like, I don't want to see uh, Ian Malcolm hurt or I don't want to see Dr. Sadler hurt. So those are, I'm excited about that. Right, right. I, I agree that let, let's see what happens. Hopefully. Well, I don't know. I Like we know they have plot armor around them. We don't think that they're going to be seriously hurt. So it'll be shocking if anything happens like Ian Malcolm, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he survived the first one to come back in, this, in, in the Lost World. So we'll see if he right. can survive another one. Absolutely. So um, you mentioned Star Wars and Indiana Jones. What are your other favorite uh, genres or movies and properties of yeah, I, I guess I'm a child of the Lucas Spielberg canon. So anything that's Lucas and Spielberg, I'm, I'm going to be a fan of. Uh, but I through through comics and, and other things, I've, I've definitely explored anything. I love all types of cinema. So um, but I would say if, if you're going to really force me to pick, I would say Jaws is probably up there but was as a number one movie uh, and then Star Wars. Star Wars is we could spend a whole nother podcast talking about my emotional relationship with Star Wars of like wonder, delight, acceptance, and now a kind of a passive relationship with Star Wars. But I also love uh, the Batman character and and the Batman world and the comics of Batman, too. So I I really like anything like it doesn't take much for me to get excited about any kind of movie or genre. I love diving into different franchises, different niches that people are excited about. So anytime I can learn more about a specific fan group that are really excited about it, uh, I, I get I get pumped up and, and, and deep dive and get sucked into whatever that next community is and that next group of fanhood. Right. So uh, what are you excited about the next Batman movie coming out? I'm thrilled about the next Batman movie. I had a tumultuous relationship with the previous person in the bat suit I, uh, named Ben Affleck. Uh, <laughs> I'm not hating on him. You know, he's, you know, he's done great work, but I never felt connected to that character. There's a lot of other issues that DC has, has, has struggled with over the last 10 years, but I think seeing a different type of Batman that is calls back to the comics, that's the detective. Uh, I, I'm really excited about what this iteration the director matt reeves he did he brought back the planet of the apes franchise he's definitely i think going to take more of a not necessarily darker tone but more of a mysterious tone with this film uh, and i'm really looking forward to it uh and the, and the actors that they have playing the characters are are phenomenal i really like robert pattinson i think he's going to bring some fresh youth energy uh, some angst. Uh, um, I'm I'm really pumped up about it. So I, I already bought my tickets. So I'm I'm ready to go. <laughs> yeah, Robert Pattinson. He's definitely bringing that emo Batman energy. Yeah, yeah, you know, emo Bruce Wayne energy to the screen. That that's exactly what it looks like. And um, so what was your first Star Wars? Was it like the original trilogy or was it the the sequel trilogy? Like the first with the Anakin Skywalker trilogy? Yeah. So my my first experience with Star Wars, I didn't see the original series in the theater but my dad had so which is why i really love your show and the concept of your show because it is that generational shared love of movies my family's basically communicates through movie references that's like how we share our passion and communicate and i still remember my dad coming home 
we had like a three week period where he would bring back, he would bring home every single of the first three. He would like the first one, we watched the new hope, the second one, empire strike backs, and he'd bring it home from the video store. And we'd be so excited because we'd see the next iteration of star Wars. And after that, it was just kind of a, I just fell in love. The prequels came out. I saw them at a good age where I was young enough where it was still fun. I didn't have a critical eye, so I, I enjoyed them. I, my, my dad took us all out of school to see them. He would take, us, <laughs> take us out at like in the afternoon. It was like the coolest I've ever felt in school because it'd be like, <laughs> my dad's taking me out of school to go see Star Wars at three right. in the afternoon. Now I know it was more strategic for him. Like his work schedule, it fit better for him to do that. And probably he didn't want to like bring his kids to the theater at night. It was like, this will be better. Uh, so those are through that i i mean and then just a continuous passion for for everything star wars growing up uh you know having having my own plastic lightsaber to playing the star wars pod racing video game on n64 i mean just being engrossed in that world uh, i still am but it's that childhood love that that never leaves you right right well it looks like uh you've been indoctrinated by your father in the same way i've indoctrinated indoctrinated Zachary and what's exactly. funny is that uh even though I didn't see the original Star Wars in theaters when it was released because uh, it actually got released uh like 1977 so I was like well it's a complicated story but <laughs> I didn't see that in theater but uh the, the following two sequels were the ones that my father took me to but he didn't take me there to be indoctrinated he was less interested in Star Wars he just knew that me and my brothers liked it so he yeah <laughs> Which I think is how it was. It was like, what's the Star Wars movie? Right. Like, you know, 70, late 70s cinema. That was kind of a new weird thing that you would bring someone to a sci-fi movie. But now, right. you know, you know, fathers and mothers and families are all going to see the, the newest Marvel movie or the Spider-Man right. movie together. And there's three generations that have all experienced this char- these characters. It's it's a different world now. Right. It's It's very different. Now, genre is much more accepted than it was before. So... Uh, what do you have any socials that you want to plug uh, any projects that you're into right now? Yeah. So anybody can follow me. It's at Luke H Ferris, uh, L U K E H as in John Hammond, a uh, Ferris F E R R I S like the wheel. So at Luke H Ferris on Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook. Uh, I usually talk about movies, uh, uh, primarily a little sports commentary now and then, but, and then if you want to learn more about Jurassic pod, you can go to our website, www.jurassicpod.com, or look for us on any podcast streaming app. All right. And we'll have those details in the show notes. Make sure everybody can uh, find you in case they click on the show and look on the show notes. Like, well, I can just click here and go and find Luke Ferris and enjoy his show. So now we've come to the crux of the matter. Here the reason go. that we have gathered here today is to watch... Uh, the Lost World, Jurassic Park. So why don't you tell us about this movie? All right. A research team is sent to Jurassic Park Site B Island to study the dinosaurs there. While InGen team approaches with another agenda. Yes. I'm raising, I'm raising my InGen <laughs> mug. I have an InGen <laughs> mug. I know our listeners can't see it, but I had to, I had to raise my InGen mug in solidarity to InGen. <laughs> That that is awesome. I had not realized that Engine had put out merchandise. You would think that their their reputation would go down the toilet, right? <laughs> you know, they're trying to keep things open. They're trying to keep right, the doors right. open. 
<laughs> so so that lovely uh very short and sweet description was provided by imdb this movie was released on may 23rd 1997 by universal pictures and emblem entertainment entertainment and digital image associates it grossed over 229 million dollars in the u.s and canada and 618 million dollars worldwide on a 73 million dollar budget now it had poor reviews but if you're wondering why they keep making sequels of jurassic park it's 680 million dollars <laughs> worldwide yeah there you go <laughs> on a 73 million not even a million dollar budget maybe a million maybe no not uh not even a hundred million dollar budget maybe it would have ballooned them uh, at a hundred million if you consider the marketing but still 680 million was like it, it was a bad story and people didn't like it but they they went they sure went and watched it they mm -hmm. certainly did <laughs> so um we're going to find out who appeared in, in in uh in this section where we talk about who's starring in the film i've only included some of the actors not all of the actors i meant to review the film and see if i can include some some more that deserve to be on this list but i didn't so we're just gonna go with with who I have here. So I'm going to start off with uh, Jeff Goldblum. He played, is that Ian or Al Ian? Ian. Ian, Ian I believe. You. Ian Malcolm. Wait a minute. His last name is Malcolm? Yeah, I guess Ian so. Malcolm. That is, I just realized he had two, two, two first names. It's like his last name is a first name. Yeah. So uh, Dr. Ian Malcolm, uh, Jeff Goldblum has been in the Grand Budapest Hotel, Independence Day, and Asteroid City. He's he's been in a lot of stuff. He he always has uh, a gravitating presence. He doesn't really act. He just projects himself. It yes. seems, and it's like so, like he was in the movie The Pride. So he projected himself less. And then you see him in Thor Ragnarok, where he magnified himself more. So <laughs> whenever yes. whenever you watch Jeff Goldblum in film, it's basically more or less. Jeff you're getting Je you're getting Jeff Goldblum. Uh, right. That, that's a great way to put it. You, he's, right. You're either magnifying or you're lessening it. Uh, Julianne Moore was also on this film as Dr. Sarah Harding. She was from Far From Heaven. The Kids Are All Right. Still Alice and a ton of other uh, movies. I mean, her credit list is very, very long. Yes. Yes. I. You could not. I mean, technically, I could list them off, but I'm not trying to have a <laughs> three hour podcast like like I had a couple of episodes ago. So also we have. Oh, goodness gracious. I should have practiced pronouncing. All right. Name. This one's tough. I'll, I'll help. It's Pete Postlewaite. Oh, I thank you. That, that's our like American way we say it, Postlewaite. But I think that's either Welsh or Scottish. So, right, right. And, and I, tell, I, I won't try an accent. It's probably it's probably Welsh. Uh, I don't think he's Scottish, but yeah, Pete Postlewaite. And he's been in a bunch of stuff. And it's like he's his he is so distinctive. He's sort of like Jeff Goldblum is like when you see him in movies and film or TV shows, he's very distinctive personality. So he played Roland Tempo. He's been in The Usual Suspects, The Town, and Inception. So, and then I, I one quick thing about Pete Possilway, he is one of those great, like you said, character actors where you probably wouldn't know his name as an actor, but you've seen something that he's been in. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. He's one of those guys. All right, next up is, you know him, you love him, some people love him, is Vince Vaughn playing Nick Van Owen. Uh, Vince Vaughn is a traditionally comedic actor. He was in The Breakup, Wedding Crashers, Brawl. He was also in, uh, fun fact alert, he was in the remake of Psycho in uh, 1998 with Julianne Moore. So just a year afterwards, Julianne Moore and Vince Vaughn were together in another film. 
Ah, was that the shot for shot remake cycle? Yes. Ah, yeah, I believe okay. so. Yeah. So that that's that's pretty interesting. Um, I had not seen Psycho the remake or any of his uh any of his dramatic movies, but I've seen a lot of his uh his comedy movies, obviously, because yeah. you know that's his thing. What's funny is that I seen I was in the army, I was deployed in Iraq, and I I was in Iraq when the Reading Crashers premiered in the US or internationally or whatever. So I was on a base and Vince Vaughn happened to be visiting and he watched the movie with us. Oh my gosh. So that was pretty awesome. And he had that is question, so cool. And we had a question and answer session. And inevitably, one of the pre somebody asked, uh, what's the deal with you and Jennifer Aniston? Because that's who he was rumored to be connected with at the time. And he very tactfully and very polished uh when he answered. Me and Miss Aniston are just good friends. And that was the most awesome answer <laughs> that he could have given. That's amazing. Right. I, I feel like he probably like, maybe like that's good. It shows you how good those actors are like to answer those questions because on a base, maybe he would have been a little bit more loose. Like he might've been like, well, no one's going to, no one's going to like TMZ is not here to pick this up, you know? Right. Right. But right. He still was able to answer it uh, and, and be tactful in his answer. Right. Right. So next up is Arliss Howard. He played Peter Ludlow. He was in full metal jacket, the time traveler's wife and Moneyball. And and a ton of other movies, although I admittedly do not recognize. <laughs> yeah, he's he's not as uh, recognizable. He, I love him in this movie. I haven't. I I definitely haven't. He's probably the least top top shelf star in in this movie. But I love his character in it. Right. Um, he plays the nephew of John Hammond, who's played by Richard Attenborough, coming back from the first one. Very traditional English actor, The Great Escape, Gandhi, Miracle on 34th Street, where he plays Santa, uh, which I think a lot of people know him from. Um, just a great, great traditional British actor. Right, right. Isn't he like the voice of the like one of the Save the Earth series or something like that's, that? That's uh that's David Attenborough. Oh, okay. They they get I I've actually on our podcast, I fucking <laughs> flop them all the time. Um, that's funny. <laughs> and then I, well, it's, it's, it, and then there's John Hammond and then there's Richard Hammond from top gear. And then I right. also, I also mix those up. So, right. Okay. Uh, next up is Vanessa Chester. She played Kelly Curtis. She's been in CB4, Harriet the Spy and 17 again. And I'm thinking that she plays Jeff Goldblum's daughter. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. And then, uh, we have, uh, Peter Stormare, um, who plays Dieter Stark. Uh, he's another great character actor from Fargo, Brothers Grimm, and Constantine. Um, he's one of those, again, one of those people that you he traditionally plays more villain roles. And when you see him, you recognize him. Right, right, right. All right. So this fantastic fun fair was directed by Steven Spielberg. Most recently, he directed the West Side Story. He's also done Bridge of Spies. And he's he has a project that's upcoming that he will actually be directing called The Fablemans. So and and plus a ton of your favorite movies. Yeah, he, he's done a few things in his career. Yeah. <laughs> he's done decent. Yeah, decent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I will say that Steven Spielberg's worst movie is better than a lot of directors' best movie. 
That's and, so true. Yeah, uh, that it's like you can't you can't really get away from him. He's like a black hole of talent. So <laughs> he is cinema. Like he that's like he just knows how to do things so well. Right. When you know when there's d- directors that are directing some of the biggest movies that are literally trying to mimic the way he makes his movies, that's when you know you've made it. Right, right. So uh, who wrote this movie? David Cope uh, wrote the screenplay. He's done a couple things. Uh, Sturb Echo, Spider-Man, and Mission Impossible. Definitely uh, that late 90s, 2000s era. And then also, like we talked about earlier, Michael Crichton was really involved in both the first movie and the second movie as far as the story. Uh, so those two, and they they came back together for this as well. Right, right. Uh, I think that Michael Crichton will probably get story credit forever in the Jurassic Park series. I mean, after all, he created the source material. So uh, that that's just going to be where when you think of Jurassic Park or Jurassic World, you, uh, you ha- always have to give credit to Michael Crichton. Yeah. And one more point on Crichton, just because I think a lot of people don't realize this, is he didn't want to write a sequel to Jurassic Park. He notoriously has never written a sequel, like official sequel. There was a post-humanist sequel, but uh, The Lost World was the first time he committed to writing a sequel. We don't know exactly what happened because he's since passed, but part of it was, I think, pressure for from the studios to make another movie. So uh, it's really interesting because there's a four-year gap between The Lost World and the original Jurassic Park. And I'll, I actually printed out and, and wrote down the timeline. So the first novel came out in 1990. Jurassic Park movie came out in 93. And then he got the novel out in 95. And then the Lost World movie in 97. So within those seven years, two books, two movies, pretty impressive. Right. And I think he wrote, he had to write the sequel because otherwise the studio would probably would have just commissioned some, do, some dude to write a Exactly. They would have written a novel that was based on the screenplay, which was really popular in the 90s. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, and I've read a couple of those. I read Gremlins, the the novel that was based on the screenplay. <laughs> and, that would be interesting. Yeah, yeah. Just as thrilled when I read that novel as when I saw the movie. So, yeah, I don't know if they're still doing that, but it it, it was definitely in vogue. It's, it's almost like in... Uh, in the 90s, when you had a really popular song, you had to have a Spanish language version oh, yeah. of that song. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. And the novelizations, a lot of times I felt like they were there were marketing tactics. Like it was a way to like get them get the word about out to the movie. Like you they, a lot of times they would come out before the movie would come out or they would be in conjunction. So I always I had novelizations of all the Star Wars movies, tons of movies. I loved, I couldn't get enough of them. Right, right, absolutely. And not only that, but it's, I think it was part of a marketing strategy strategy, and also to give the impression that maybe these movies were based on books, right? And people <laughs> always know that, you know, the, the movies, if, if they made a movie of the book, then perhaps it's a great book and maybe you got to go see the movie. So they wouldn't even buy the book. They would just get the impression that the book came first when it is really an adaptation of the screenplay. So that's funny. So um, the music provided in this movie was uh, the music that I say, all right, I'm confusing myself. The music provided in this movie was by John Williams. He just turned 90 years old. Just turned 90. He just turned 90 years old and he's still going and and he's still working. He's going to be doing Indiana Jones 5, he's going to be doing The Fablemans, and he's going to be doing some other projects. So it, amazing that you can still compose music at, at doing any kind of work at 90 years old, right? So yeah, it's, it's, it's insane. And his 
music it's it it kind of shocks me when i saw that he turned 90 i it was amazing to me because this guy basically was the soundtrack to my childhood and but continues to be the soundtrack to my life and right. just such a brilliant creator and so tied to the success of cinema and what we know as modern cinema today absolutely absolutely so um yeah that's all i got for right now and uh, that's it for our little rundown of how this movie was made. And if you're enjoying the show, remember, you can get T-shirts, hoodies, mugs, face masks and jerseys and more at our website, BacklookCinema.com, where you can click on either the Teespring.com link or the Teepublic.com link. And I'll also have the, those links in the show notes. And we'll be taking a short news break. All right, we're back for our little news break uh, stuff I heard around the interwebs, uh, things that had went down in in the movie sphere. So, have you have you seen anything that happened in the movie space that that uh, that had caught your ear? Well, I think being uh, a Jurassic Park fan and and talking about the Lost World, uh, the Dominion trailer just came out, and we just as we're recording this, the Super Bowl was pretty recent. So we had a bunch of trailers and promotional things just drop. So the Dominion trailer, they dropped it a little bit ahead of time. Funny story. I was expecting it. We were all expecting it to be during the Super Bowl, which they did do the trailer during the Super Bowl, but they launched it online on the Thursday before the Super Bowl. So I work remotely. So I was sitting at a coffee shop in my small town and I was, you know, doing work. I checked Twitter and I saw a screen grab of Dr. Alan Grant. And I was like, oh, no, they dropped it. I went and watched the whole thing with my headphones. But I was in the middle of a coffee shop and I started tearing <laughs> up because I was so dramatically moved by the trailer. Uh, so it was a little embarrassing. But you know what? I owned it. Uh, but that was definitely exciting. And then another thing that has been getting me excited is. Uh, Jeff Bezos says, I mean, Amazon's new Lord of the Rings series, uh, TV series is coming out in the fall. And there's a lot of debate and fear. When we talk about fear of franchise uh, failure, there's a lot of fear with Lord of the Rings fans of what that's going to be. Right, right. Yeah. It's like the, the main objective is to not mess it up. Please don't mess this up, Amazon. It's like it, it was going good for a while. And then it's been... The reputation has been hurt by the recent the release of the Hobbit trilogy, and that that was, and it was like there were a lot of errors made in, yep. in that. Well, one of the errors to make into a trilogy, it was like completely unnecessary. You can absolutely do this in one film, and if you were pressed, then you you would make it into a duology. You wouldn't have two films and then stop. But stretching it out into a trilogy, that was. Just, I mean, the only way that would have worked if they had included some other material, like they included some stuff from the Salamari and some kind of weave that into the narrative or something like that. But I don't feel like that's what we saw. I just felt no. like they just took the movie and then they added story to it. Like that was so unnecessary. It didn't need yeah. to do that. <laughs> I, I, re I actually, it's funny you bring those up because I rewatched the Hobbit trilogy recently and just to see if it held up. Cause I saw them all in theaters, but I hadn't rewatched them since. So I rewatched them and it was pretty much what I remember the first kind of first half of the trilogy was good because it was very tied to the story like the first scenes all the there's a lot of stuff that was really good it wasn't like it's a different kind of story so it's much more light and and fun uh but the second half of the trilogy is 
it's just they're just wasting there's killing time right 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 yeah which and and it was the cgi was it has not aged well and <laughs> i think that's you know one of the things that we'll we'll talk about with the lost world and jurassic park is the mixture of cgi and practical tends to stand the test of time better when it's done right. well right absolutely so uh and some stuff that i grabbed during the week and it's like i kind of I didn't do a copy paste. I kind of, what do you call it? I, I uh, summarized what I wrote from the stuff I heard around the interwebs. Usually I do a better job of it because I actually read the entire article, but this time I just grabbed the headlines and, and did the best I could <laughs> because I was like in a rush uh, of typing this off. So this is just some stuff I heard around the, on the, around the internet. So this is from screen Wrap. According to deadline, the Batman gets a China release is the second movie to get a Chinese release after death on the Nile. Now this wow. is exciting news because China has basically been closed to U S releases, including Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, uh, one of the biggest movies of 2021. So uh, China is kind of s- slightly cracking open. their. That's really world. interesting. Yeah. Cause they typically don't do that unless they, funded the movie which uh they've funded a lot of movies you'd be surprised how many movies have been funded by chinese companies uh and and there's a a chinese company just bought um in the last couple years bought legendary pictures as well so um i think that's a great thing to bring up because people don't realize how much how important chinese cinema is as far as productions and how things get made financially um but that's going to be interesting to see the batman in china Right. And also how uh, China is sensitive to their culture. So they really don't want a movie to be disparaging towards uh, their the, the culture that they're trying to push, not the culture as it is now, but the culture, yeah, that the they're culture trying, trying to, to push. And they right. it's funny that they have Batman because in the dark night, if you guys remember, Bruce Wayne leaves Gotham to go get uh, the, the basically the, the financial guy. Uh, I don't know if he's in Shang. I'm not, I don't know if he's in China specifically, but I remember that caused some problems because it was, you know, you could, you could argue it was a stereotypical, oh, it's, it's a East Asian financial guy. That's, that's part of this. That's, you know, kind of a dirty money kind of a guy. And I remember that guy and that guy kind of flack from, right. from, uh, from the Chinese cinema people. So it's interesting that they're letting Batman come back, but we'll see. Right. Right. I don't, I think they're, they would take each, batman story as it is on its own so yeah i don't know what the story is in the batman the, movie, the upcoming movie but i don't think uh the, I'm, I'm sure that someone in the chinese government has done some sort of vetting of this somebody movie. somebody saw it yeah they, somebody they, saw i feel it. like they do a pretty good job vetting right. stuff like that's right. something that they do very well <laughs> right right so i figured that this this cross uh this passes their smell test <laughs> So next up, uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness was the most viewed Super Bowl, I want to say 56 trailer from Screen Rant that came from Screen Rant. So, and me and Zach talked about this. So basically what we discussed is that they had a lot of little tidbits from various Marvel shows that were packed into the Multiverse of Madness trailer. So I imagine that it was watched over and over again to get yeah. Bit of info that they could like they had no less than three versions of Doctor Strange plus a fourth one which may have been a mutated version of one of the three they had uh they had what's his name um 
Charles Xavier's voice with Patrick, Patrick Stewart. Stewart. Yeah. Right. So we don't know if he's playing Charles Xavier in the Multiverse of Madness. Nobody's confirmed it, but that is what everybody is guessing. You heard his voice or something that sounded very much like his voice at the end of the trailer. So people are watching that over and over again. You saw. I, um, I'm hoping it's actually Jean-Luc Picard Star Trek <laughs> has come into the Multiverse of Madness. That's what I actually want. You know what? That That would not be far off. Because there has been like a couple of X-Men, uh, X-Men Star Trek, the next generation crossovers in the comics. So that's not, you know, far from. Uh, let's imagine, get crazy. Believe like, business. Yeah, right, right. Sam Raimi's coming back to direct it. Like, let's get <laughs> as weird as possible. To, right. Like, let's get crazy. I'm all for it. Right. And then uh, what was the other thing that was in there? Oh, there are two versions of Scarlet Witch. So we're yeah. all excited. And then that, uh, that quote that she had at the end, which was. You break the rules and you're a hero. I break the rules and I'm a villain. I'm a villain and it doesn't seem fair. And I'm like, you know what? You're right, Wanda. It doesn't seem fair. Yeah, I think that's a great storyline that has not been explored in um, what, uh, comic book movies, but just in cinema in general. Of when you look at a film in the hero's perspective, you're looking at it as correct, even if they're technically breaking the rules. Like. Harry Potter breaks the rules consistently every year of school that he's in school. Like he's a, he's a, like, if you look at it from eight, like just a technicality, he's a bad kid. Like that dude like breaks the rules and gets away with it. Uh, in, in the lost world, Nick Van Owen breaks the rules, but when you see them in a, in a, in the hero lens, they're not, it's not a bad choice. Right, so it'll be right. interesting to explore that. Absolutely. And um, there was something else I wanted to say about it, but I can't remember. Was I, so I'm, I'm just gonna move on. <laughs> I'm sorry, I brought. I, I I'm going no, on tangent after tangent. It's not multiverse of conversation. <laughs> it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's my brain is just fractured. So from THR, uh, this is via Screen Rant. John Cena will be in the Coyote versus Acme film for HBO Max release. So I don't know if you heard about this one. No, I didn't. I haven't been keeping up on my John Cena news lately. Well, I'm talking about that Coyote versus Acme. No, I haven't. Is that, can you, can you explain it to me? So Coyote versus Acme is going to center around Coyote, like the animated Coyote from the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner movies. Oh. Like Wild E. Coyote, super genius. That character. But the, and the, yeah, because the Acme. Right. Okay, that's really interesting that, that that's like the working title though. Right. Because Acme are all the products that the Coyote uses. Yeah. When he chases the Roadrunner with a rocket, it's a, Acme branded rocket. When he chases the road one on rocket skate, it's a rocket, it's an Acme branded rocket skate. So, so everything that the coyote uses comes from the company called Acme. So this movie is called Coyote versus Acme. So this is going to be an animated film with live action uh characters. Okay. So this, like so they I'm, did the Tom and Jerry, didn't they do a Tom and Jerry movie recently? Yes. Like yes. that. Like Tom okay. and Jerry, like Who Frames Roger Rabbit, like Cool World, like like those movies. I'm imagining. That's what's going to happen. Okay. So, um, I'm, I'm, and I also imagine that John Cena will be a live action character and not, uh, and not an animated. <laughs> you got to show the muscles off. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. He's not going to, he's not being a part of a movie if he's not showing it off. Right. Guns. Right. Absolutely. So, um, I don't know how to feel about the movie. I love, I love the coyote. I love the coyote roadrunner movies, but they, uh, the, the animated movies that, uh, Warner Brothers have, have put out have not been great lately. So no. we just got to wait and see. Uh, actually, one of the most re recent movies that, that have been pretty good was uh, the Sonic the Hedgehog movie. 
I, I haven't seen, seen that. I haven't seen it, but I heard there it was it was really well done. Right. I haven't seen it, but Zach has seen it because you know he's he's all about Sonic the Hedgehog, and he absolutely loved that movie. So I was like, well, maybe I gotta. And even the Pikachu movie, uh, Detective Pikachu, he saw that movie, absolutely loved that one. So I was like, well, maybe I gotta take a chance on those movies because I like those characters too. But I'm worried about what. Like we're supposed to see Uncharted like later on. Oh. Gonna see that today. Are you gonna see and, it today? I I've been like tiptoeing of whether because I, I i'm not a game like, i know you guys are, are more gamers i'm not a huge gamer i love video games but i like i'm not a, i'm not i wouldn't call myself a gamer but uncharted is like one of the video games that i've always loved and i played a, a ton so i'm nervous about it yeah i'm nervous because i've seen a lot of i don't haven't actually read any of the reviews but i've seen the headlines and yeah. from the headlines you can see that the critics are not being kind to this movie, so I don't know. But it has a very high audience score from uh, certain aggregates. So uh, I think I looked at, uh, there's a, there is a, I'm trying to think of what it's called. There's an app that's called Adam. And the Adam app is where you can buy movie tickets uh, online and then go to your movie and go to the theaters. They also have a place where people can review movies who buy, tickets on adam and it has a very high cinema score through the adam app so this is just the audience okay. so maybe it's just that's one a good of those, sign right maybe it's just one of those things that the audience love and that the critics hate that uh rotten tomatoes has not had uh an audience score yet where they do have a critic score and it is very low it's like it's like it's a, very it's like low a rotten, rotten. yeah it's, it's it started low and now it's getting lower and lower <laughs> yeah, every yeah. day i've been checking it every day and like, yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. but it I, could be it could be like the eternals the, the eternals had a very low critical score yeah. but it has a relatively fair audience score so uh, as, as long as it's better than the assassin's creed movie I, yeah. i'll i'll be i'll be okay i can't i can't figure out why when nobody's cracked the code on doing a very good video game movie it's just it's hard murder. it's like Uncharted is basically uh, an Indiana Jones clone. How hard yeah. is it to make? It can't Indiana, be that hard. Right. And Indiana Jones is just a clone of Alan Quartermain. It can't be that hard. Even like, I didn't like Crystal Skull, but it's not really that bad of a movie. Yeah, it's, just, they're fun movies. They're, right, they're right. fun adventure movies. They're, they're, that's what the, the whole idea, the DNA of those movies are. Right. So I hope Uncharted is, it, it, I just hope it like is fun. Like just right. be fun. That's right. all I care. Yeah. So hopefully, I don't know how they mess how they keep messing it up but hopefully they'll crack the code okay so, let me know <laughs> i definitely will so i well we're gonna put out uh well I, I will put out a podcast later on after i watch the movie to see uh, awesome. let people know if they should go check it out right now or maybe just cool your heels and watch it when it hits netflix or something or you where you can rent it off of the tv so uh the last thing i got that i've heard around the uh the web is a screen rant reported that on the podcast blank chat with i think that's griffin and david i think i misspelled that but anyway uh the new york times reporter kyle buchanan confirmed that chris helmsworth would be playing a villain in mad max for your old people so mm. that looks that looks interesting uh we i don't think yeah. we've seen chris helmsworth as a villain and i'm looking forward to seeing him because i've only seen him as a good guy i've seen him as being very goofy he was actually the best part of the ghostbusters movie that came out in 2016 that that really wasn't funny like uh, there are some people didn't like it because it uh doesn't have anything to do with the previous franchises to some people didn't like it because they were all women uh and i didn't like it because i didn't think it's funny even though it had some <laughs> of it had the funniest comic actors 
in the movie, but the movie itself wasn't funny. So that didn't make any sense to me. But Chris Helmsworth was the funniest part of that movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I laughed every single time when when he ever whenever he did something, and then um and then they leaned on that with the with the Thor movies. That yeah, that I, I think he, I'm excited about this because the. the the entire Mad Max, or at least the last Fury Road, I mean, it was an Australian production. It's very tied to that part of the world as far as like the cinematic landscape and the crew. Uh, so to have the the top Australian actor, the face of Australia now uh, to, to be playing a villain, I'm excited because it doesn't take much to, in that world to to look intense and feel intense. And he's got the body and the, he's got the eyebrows to make, make himself look intense. So it just depends how, how like if he's going to be uh, a subdued intense character or, or more of an overacting yeah. villain well he can, def- he can definitely play intense i absolutely believe it i just never seen him as a villain so one of the things i looked at was uh if you look at the earlier avengers movies and the earlier thor movies you can see that they were like trying to tap into his comedy potential but it was very muted and mm-hmm. then and thor ragnarok which is absolutely exploited and to a fun degree like it was abs- it was it was very unexpected and he was extraordinarily good at it and then um if you want to see almost a, a more intense version, there's a movie he did called Extraction, which now they're going to do a sequel to. Oh, they are. That's yes, awesome. They're doing, and I was uh, surprised. Uh, uh, that was an amazing movie. And it's extremely intense in that movie. It's like he's in pain the entire movie. And I'm talking about emotional pain. Like yeah. He's, it's like he's suffering from uh, PTSD from uh, a previous trauma. And so that as uh, Dave, he very effectively played that part so it's it's very it's it's much it's the opposite of the fun and loving chris helmsworth and it's really the uh, i want to burn the world the world down chris yeah. helmsworth so it's, i'm excited it's about it effective. i think that's gonna be good right right so uh now we're gonna get into where we talk about our favorite parts now i hadn't seen this movie in a while but you have seen this movie so many times that you have committed to memory so i don't think that you required a rewatch but uh me and zach we just finished watching this movie last night so um he very much loved the movie he had seen the first jurassic park so he he loved this one and i'm starting to understand that it doesn't take much to please Zachary if it's an action movie and <laughs> he, he absolutely loves it. Yeah, because like we've seen some movies lately, like the last movie we saw in the action movie theater that was that had action and it was Moonfall, and he liked that movie. And I thought I I didn't really like that movie. <laughs> so like, yeah, a lot of explosions, action. He's 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 down for it. Right, right, right. It's like after seeing Moonfall, I was like, Roland Emmerich, you fooled me again. <laughs> But uh, but he really so I I kind of knew that he would like this movie and it, it was a and upon the rewatch like when I first watched it, it was more like a meh meh to me. But when I on this rewatch, I was like, you know what, it, it was a pretty good movie. I think that when I think about it, it didn't it wasn't as in depth as previous movies, right? So yeah, it wasn't as in depth as Jurassic Park. It, it, they they had some uh real. I want to say uh, uh, ethical questions that needed to be answered, things of that nature. And they really explored that in the first movie and they kind of go over it in the second movie, but you know, it's, it's no need to keep hammering the point home. So they just went with straight action. And yeah, it's, it's basically, I mean, you, you mentioned extraction. 
this is a this is a rescue mission movie. That's basically what the premise is. It's right, it's right. Going to rescue uh, Doctor Sadler. Ian Malcolm's going back to the island to rescue Doctor Sadler. It's a chase against another group of people. Then they come together and they're trying to survive the island. Right. And then the third act is like basically Godzilla. But right. But. <laughs> right. Ha- having yeah, when you, with you mentioning um, uh, the rescue mission, it is. And that decides that it should be a rescue mission. Like the Hammond was like, well, this is just going to be some research. You're just going to sneak on the island and do a little research and you can come back home. It was like, and Ian was like, now this is a rescue mission. You don't understand. It's like, you're still in a place where nobody understands or nobody listens to But I, I kind of like that they stuck with that research, uh, that, that concept. So that's one of my favorite parts. So why don't you tell me some of your favorite parts? Well, I've always loved uh, this movie mainly because Pete Postlewaite's character as uh, P- as um, as Roland Tempo as the hunter. Uh, there's actually, which a lot of fans know about, there's a deleted scene that introduces the character. I call him the gentleman hunter. He very much he very much has a, a moral line that he, in code. Uh, I love his line when they're on the jeeps first getting the island, like the first shot where we see the bad guy team, as I like to call them. Uh, and and uh, uh, Peter Ludlow is talking about, oh, we should set up our camp there. We should do this. And Roland says, I've, I've taken t- too many stupid dentists on safaris to help them shoot a, a rhino. Like, I'm here for the T-Rex. That's all I'm here for. I like that's that's my payment. Right. And his in his like intensity and moral code. If we take a step back, he's still a bad person. Like he he hunts big. He hunt, he's like the dude who hunts elephants, like not necessarily a good person, uh, but his, his moral code is his determination throughout the film. And then his, the last part of, or his last scene um, where he, they capture the T-Rex and they capture the baby T-Rex and Ludlow comes up to him and says, you can have a a job at, at the, at the next, next Jurassic park, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. Like you just, hunted the biggest beast the biggest animal on the planet you should be super happy and he says you know rj didn't make it his his like companion his buddy didn't make it and he realizes that this project this whole scientific experiment is is about death and he's he's sick of being in the company of death so his character has such a cool arc and it's this little mini character mini arc in this movie uh, that I absolutely love. And, and a lot of Jurassic Park fans, you'd be surprised. He comes up as one of the be- most favorite characters in the entire franchise. And I think because he fits into the Jurassic Park narrative, um, but he ha- also has this kind of really unique arc and moral code. Even though he's technically kind of a villain, uh, you really actually come to understand him throughout the film. So he's definitely one of my highlights. Uh, and then another highlight, I do have to say, I'm a huge Jeff Goldblum fan. Uh, Ian Malcolm's character in this, he's less cool. He's definitely experienced trauma. I love his interaction with uh, his daughter, Kelly. Uh, the kind of first scene where you see him together, they're prepping to go to the island. She's running around uh, the warehouse and he's trying to chase her. And she's kind of like, no, you don't parent me. Like, I, I want to go on adventures. That interaction, that dynamic, I think makes this movie exciting because it adds stakes to Ian's rescue mission. When he discovers that Kelly Kelly's there, uh, it, it makes him more nervous and, and more determined also 
to, to rescue not only his former lover and doctor and, or in Julian Moore's character, but his daughter to protect his daughter. And it's, it's symbolic of the nature of the T-Rexes. This movie is about those T-Rex parents trying to protect their baby T-Rex. So you see the, the human characters experience that in contrast with the dinosaur characters. Uh, and that way there, there's this connection of the heroes being the T-Rexes and also Ian Malcolm's character. Right, right. Uh, yeah, it, it, there's kind of like, a, it. well, in, in some respects, they, they do spend some time being the villains, right? <laughs> yeah, well, they, they, they spend, kill a lot of people. <laughs> well, no, not not that was like in um, like Ian and his team. They're, oh, they're yeah, trying yeah. to yeah. rescue this. Uh, they're trying to heal this baby Tyrannosaur. But at the same time, uh, the Tyrannosaurs don't see it that way. So no. from the Tyrannosaurs, the Tyrannosaurus perspective, oh, these guys kidnapped our baby. So yes, they're the villains. They actually become the villains because right. they and that's one of the biggest plot holes in the movie, uh, which doesn't happen in the book. Uh, you why would why would someone who is a doctor and Dr. Sarah Harding be so foolish to bring a baby, like any baby animal? bring them into a, like a, a human vehicle and try to like save them. Right. That's like the, it's so dumb that you would do that. And that's why I, Nick Van Owen, the character by Vince Vaughn, I, he frustrates me and a little bit because of that. That's one of the, the few parts of the movie that I always get frustrated with. Cause if you were a trained scientist, you wouldn't have done that. Right. I think that it's uh, because these creatures are, technically endangered right this is there are not that many of these tyrannosaurs around so she had i think she knew what she was doing was risky and dangerous but she thought that in her hubris that she could heal this tyrannosaur yeah and put it That's out back in a while with before they got caught and the problem was it failed they got caught with the with with the hot potato so to speak and then <laughs> they and like she gave it to the tyrannosaurs but it was too late because now the tyrannosaurs are pissed and that was a they're a pretty cool sequence one of my favorite sequences is that they're they're in the uh they're, they're in that train well that extended trailer and the tyrannosaurs are harassing them and trying to push them over the cliff and they you know they're trying to save each other all the high stakes of trying not to die and then the guy on the outside trying to hook the uh the the what do you call that the the rope around yeah the yeah the the trailer thing uh, and uh, eddie Carr character yeah right right and then at the winch he tried to hook up to the wrench of the trailer and it's like i'm not seeing uh his small suv pulling that giant trailer in the mud like maybe on dry concrete on a sunny day maybe but not like no. sliding around in the mud with tyrannosaurs around but still it was a thrilling sequence and oh uh, it's I, such it, a good sequence it's one of the best in the franchise it's right. so good it's worth it it's worth it for that little like lapse and like why would you bring the baby back because right. we get that entire sequence right 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 and it's like i think and uh, i think it was uh you also criticized her for like still wearing jacket and it's got the baby's blood all over it and so like the tyrannosaur wouldn't come and looking for the jacket and i think that um i think that she's in shock and she's mm -hmm. not like when you experience trauma, you're not going to think everything through. The only thing she's thinking is, OK, I'm, I got my coat on and I'm walking. Oh, what is that? Oh, it's just dinosaur blood. I'm fine. But <laughs> it's not my blood. <laughs> That's all she's worried about. And then, <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. And then uh, and then the Tyrannosaurs come back, you know, for whatever, because they got their baby. But 
for whatever behavior reasons they come and uh, they find the baby's blood and they figure that they need to, uh, these creatures need to be stomped out. Uh, and <laughs> it's like these, baby, these, these creatures, they stole my baby. They got my baby's blood on them. Did they try to eat my baby? Well, let's stomp them out and make sure they don't come back. <laughs> They're not coming for my back. baby. Right, right. And so, and then she realizes too late that she, she should not have brought the Tyrannosaur baby blood with her into the tent. <laughs> but yeah, I can see how that would be frustrating, but I would think that she's just in shock. Like she's in continuing shock because she's just there. Uh, one of my favorite lines, Ian Malcolm says, uh, when like when they first get there and they see the Stegosaurus and they're like, Ooh, oh, look at that. And he says, Yeah, that's how it starts. Ooh, and ah, and then running and screaming. And right? screaming. <laughs> it's the best line. It's the line they use. They use that line in all the trailers. Uh, right. He has a lot of great one liners yeah. uh, throughout this film. Absolutely. In similar to the sequence we were talking about when he says, Mommy's very angry. Yeah. For it. I mean, it's just, yeah. The, it's, it's made, it's a big summer action blockbuster for a reason. Right. Because you get those good one liners like that that I just love. Right. Also, you had mentioned, um, uh, so you like the Hunter character. Well, people in general like the Hunter character because, uh, because of his story arc. So it's funny that you mentioned that. And, and you've only made me realize just now that it's because. This guy has actually learned his lesson, right? So it's the yeah. first time. It's like he's one of the few people <laughs> in the franchise. It's yeah. like during the course of the movie, he learns his lesson. He doesn't have to be taught. No, you he know, Again, it's like because Hammond doesn't learn his lessons. He's still doing the same stuff. His nephew does not learn the lesson nope. that Hammond learned because Hammond kind of learns, right? He's like, let's put yeah, him on an island and yeah. leave him alone. They're, front, they're not going anywhere. They're on an island. Just leave him on an island. Leave him alone. They'll be fine. And we can try to study him. We long as you stay on the perimeter, but if you don't antagonize animals, they, they should be fine. But his his uh his nephew learns the wrong lesson. His the lesson that his nephew learned is, oh well, he didn't do it right, so I'm going to do it the right way, exactly. right? So, <laughs> exactly. And then uh you know a lot of other characters they they just like Malcolm knows the lesson. He's the one that's trying to teach the lesson. The only reason he goes is because his girlfriend is on the island who has not been taught the lesson, right? No. <laughs> so yeah so, she very quickly she realizes it but i think that's a really important thing is the lesson of like we shouldn't toy with nature like this is is a theme that's throughout Jurassic park but we see it very clearly here because this is the first time that we see the dinosaurs bring be brought back to the mainland uh which right. is a big it's a big thing that's going to be coming back in, in this new movie uh, which is really interesting. If you rewatch The Lost World, that I think it's a good prep prep for this new movie because when they eventually bring the dinosaurs in, it, and it's just a T Rex, it causes a lot of havoc. Right, uh, right. And to think that you could somehow create a dinosaur sea world in San Diego, <laughs> right, <laughs> seems pretty foolish. Uh, another and, and the the amphitheater that they have does not even seem big enough for a tyrannosaur. No. And another thing is. Uh, that I noticed is that uh so and um well it was it was something that I think I read in an interview years ago that Steven Spielberg he had wanted to specifically direct this movie because he had because there was another director that was either slated or they had said that there was talks about him directing uh the lost world but Steven Spielberg said he wanted to direct this movie because he wanted to do the movie where the dinosaurs were in the city. <laughs> like he mm -hmm. wanted that to be his movie. And so yeah. that's what uh, The Lost World became. And then that 
director in question, he ended up directing Jurassic Park 3. So that, that's an interesting dynamic. But it, it he's, you could tell that Spielberg is really having fun directing the T-Rex yes. in, in the city. So he added things like uh, the Japanese tourists running from the T-Rex in homage to Godzilla and things like that. So uh, and the T-Rex eating the little dog. <laughs> Unbelievable. Only Spielberg, like Spielberg at that point was having fun. Like he was just yeah. flexing at that point. I was like, yeah, yeah. this is going to be hilarious. Right, I'm just right. going to do it. Right. So yeah, I, I, I liked all those parts. So um hold on. I had I had to write down my favorite part because as I, I mentioned before, my memory is fractured. So we talked about the the I oh mom mom was angry. Um we talked about uh oh there was another there was another line that was like a, a dialogue exchange uh where somebody said uh we came here and we found them and Ian said no they found you. <laughs> so yeah, he he had a lot of great lines. Um, the the only thing that was that kind of had uh, that kind of threw me off was Ian's daughter. So that that kind of threw me off because it's like she it almost seemed like she was kind of shoehorned into the movie because in the first movie he does not seem like he's a father figure. I felt like he was written as a single man. It didn't feel like he had a family behind him. And now, uh, but he kind of transition like as you watch the movie he kind of transitioned to the father figure fairly well but it kind of threw me off when i first saw the movie yeah i i've always my joke is that i want to see the abc 90s sitcom of ian malcolm and kelly in in <laughs> i think they mentioned research in austin when she was with him like we do miss that gap because in the first film he's like kind of like the playboy like hotshot scientist uh like not neil degrasse tyson but like celebrity scientists like, yeah. like he's a celebrity scientist he does mention that he has kids but he kind of mentions that like uh dr grant asks him do you have kids and he says oh sure plenty of them so he kind of mentions oh. it in a, pa- in a passe way he doesn't say necessarily like oh yeah my daughter kelly she's amazing she's right, in gymnastics right. he kind of alludes that like He's got a couple of kids, uh, but he's not necessarily a part of their life as much. Um, so it is cool to get this dynamic where the last time we saw him, he was this really cocky kind of hot shot through his trauma. We see him in this movie. He's much more reserved and he's broken. Like we don't necessarily see that as much, but he's he's technically like a failure um, mm-hmm. because he signed a, a, a non-disclosure agreement. I would love to see uh, a sitcom where like you're seeing all that character change, but I get it. It's a blockbuster movie. Like they, they can't spend two and a half hours of Ian Malcolm's like family life and how he's changed <laughs> as a person, but it is a very different character yeah, in this yeah. movie. He's very, very different. Right. Right. Yeah. He's, he's a uh, broken because he's not so much as a, he financially but he has been discredited or like he's telling the truth and the company has successfully debunked uh everything that he says because it, of engine. the non right engine because of the non-disclosure agreement that he had signed so he had they probably sued him or whatever or they probably or a judge probably filed a uh granted um a gag order or something where he can't talk about it anymore or something like that so uh yeah he's basically down in the dumps and I guess if I think that I guess in the first movie he's more like a Rolling Stone, like an actual pop star. Oh yeah, it doesn't take care of his kids, and and now that has 
children are getting older or at least one of his children is getting older now he's a little bit more involved in his in their life and is uh trying to uh get into the father role uh, that like obviously apparently he's been missing and it, uh, it seems like his mother is some well her mother is somewhat non-intentive because the only reason that she's with him is because her mother decided to go off to Paris or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then you, it's really interesting. You bring that up because she definitely clings to uh, Julianne Moore's character and that more like she's, she's definitely seeking, even though she's strong and independent as a character Kelly is like, she's like her dad where she's, she wants to kind of do her own thing and she doesn't want to be told what to do. She definitely clings to Sarah Harding as a character. Like they share that, they share that tent and they have that tent scene where they're like, they're building that relationship. But I really love the Kelly character. I, I think it's one of my favorite characters as far as kid characters because Jurassic, the Jurassic franchise being a, a Steven Spielberg product really focuses on the kid characters. And I think she's a really, really, the, the actress just did a, an amazing job not overacting which would be really hard to do and stare up there to the dinosaur and scream. Right. You know, she, right. Did, she brought a lot to the character that I really appreciated. Right. Absolutely. So um, I'm thinking about some of my other favorite parts. Oh, hold on a second. My, my audio is probably going out right now. Hold on a second. Oh, okay. Uh, here's some, something that I noticed. It's not something I necessarily liked. It's just something that I noticed that the hunter character, uh, what was his name again? Roland. Um, Roland. So Roland doesn't know any of the dinosaurs' names. It's like he yeah. ends up getting them nicknames. It's like he's so disrespectful. It's like if, I feel like if you're a hunter, that the things that you would know is the, the animal's name, its habits, where, where it goes. Like he's smart enough to know, like you mentioned earlier, that when they're on in the deeps and the uh the head of the project wants to lay down camp, he's like, You want to lay down camp in the middle of a feeding ground? What you yeah. just want to you want to just have a human buffet right in the middle where the predators stay, right? <laughs> so he, he's smart enough to know these things, but he, he can't pronounce or can't be bothered to learn the proper names of the dinosaurs. These aren't even the scientific names, this is just a common names and then he's like the elvet the pompadour yeah. go after the pompadour yeah right? and he just he tosses the document away it, right right I, I love that too because and i think it, it does set it up it is funny because you expect him to know that but it, it kind of sets up his character like he doesn't necessarily care about this research project he doesn't necessarily care about the dinosaurs like he he's there for the hunt and he knows he he believes in his his like instincts to know when he's hunting a, a predator animal right right and that's but, what he he just cares about the t-rex like right. that's all he cares about yeah i think at the time the the tyrannosaur was like the biggest predator on the planet so that's what he yeah. wanted he wanted to hunt the biggest predator uh the biggest most aggressive most uh i suppose manly because it's like he wanted specifically uh, a male t-rex but i think uh that the female is actually bigger and probably more aggressive but yeah you know for the sake of movie he wants a buck so <laughs> go after <laughs> they go after the uh the male t-rex and the the T-Rex actually has a lot more presence in this movie than in uh, Jurassic Park. So like in Jurassic Park, it was the Velociraptor that was a rock star, but in, in this movie, it was really the T-Rex. So um, yeah, he, he kind of gets his wish. You know, he accomplishes this mission and is not fully satisfied from it. But I, I just remarked at the disrespect that he had yeah, to the like, dinosaur. <laughs> the Papador. Yeah, right. And, and, and speaking of the, the Raptors, I think it's a great point where the T-Rex definitely stake is the center stage. Like it is a character, like it is very entwined with what happens with our human, human characters versus where the Raptors were more of the setup character in the, in the first, in the first movie, uh, the Raptors aren't as prominent in the lost world, which a lot of people 
maybe that's the reason why they have some qualms about this this film because they're not as integral but they, they actually play a part in my, one of my favorite scenes of all time and one that i reenact very frequently is when the camp gets attacked by the t-rex we have the whole tent scene where it's kind of like sneaking up and everyone's asleep which is a great scene and then kind of the camp spreads out everyone just is like getting getting out of camp and they're running like crazy and then a bunch of the engine guys run into a field and rj screams don't go into the long grass not right. the long grass uh that's a a line that my brother and i will always say anytime we're near long grass <laughs> uh, we have my brother on the show and he's at he's actually uh serves in the navy and anytime he's stationed and like done a training ex- exercise he'll say that line if there's long grass and i was like does anybody know that line when it's from that movie and he said one time a guy knew it was from the lost world but it's just one of my favorite lines of the movie uh, that RJ screams, don't go in the long grass because right. all the raptors are hunting them. And like right. basically like Jaws, you see them kind of going through the water, the, the water, which is the, the, the long grass. grass. Right, right, right. You see the trails from above. You can see the trails of the humans run by. And then you see the trails of the raptor. And they basically uh, get them in like uh, flanking them and, and yeah. corning them from behind. So that, that was a fun scene. And then uh, funny that Ian and his team ends up in the same grass. But <laughs> yeah. well, as we know, our heroes they don't get atta- they don't right, they don't right, die. Right. All the expendable crewmen get uh, annihilated. Right. 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 Well, I, I think that was like the leftover Raptors that didn't go after the first group. This is the second. This is the B yeah. team Raptors. B team. And <laughs> Not as go, trained as well. Right. 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 Uh, and so they go after them, uh, and then they're able to. Uh, and it's like, I that was. I think that was one that they used in the trailer a lot where he says run <laughs> run very gold blue mask right, right. Run. <laughs> uh the other uh i think one of the lines he had that was a callback to the first movie when he said must go faster and then i think in this movie he says must climb fast must in, increase rate of climb. right right increase rate of climb <laughs> which is such a way to deliver it. it's so good it's <laughs> I every time I watch that scene, and it's like the most intense part of the movie, I will just laugh out loud, just crying because increased rate of climb. Right, right, right. <laughs> I just die because it's so it take it kind of takes you out of it because it's so gold bloom. Right. Um, and you would never say that in, right. in that situation. At least I would expect you to say it and deliver it that way in that situation. Uh, right. yeah, that's a great it's a great callback. And I also like how. It's like this this movie always sets you up to know when somebody's going to die. It's like it's almost mm-hmm. like it's pointing to certain characters and letting you know that the, this guy right here, this guy's going to die. I just want you to pay attention to this guy. So the guy who was like a douchebag from the moment you first seen him. <laughs> so it it was um it was uh Dieter Dieter Stark or uh, I think that's I think that was his name. With, with that that was Roland's um second. Yeah. Yeah, he was left in charge of the camp. Yeah. And, yeah, so so Dieter uh, kind of walks off to go and pee. Now, my first thing is, why are you walking so far? Like, this camp is mostly men. And when most, what are you going to do? You're going to take down your entire pants just to take a pee? No, you're just going to open up your fly and you're going to take a pee. So just face the tree anywhere in the camp with your back to everybody else to take a pee. It's like, this is a dangerous area. You don't have to go walking off 15 feet to take a pee. Just, just walk. You could have taken a piss right next to the guy that you told that you was going to take a piss. Carter. Uh, Carter, right. <laughs> Carter is listening to his music, his Latino. He's 
He's totally he's zoned out. Right? He's, he's jamming. jamming. He's not paying night one little bit of attention <laughs> to you or where you're going. Not looking at you. He which I which I own. love, Carter. Like, you, like to to be at that point in life or like in that scenario where like there's I mean there's dinosaurs. Like, it's a scary place to be. No, I'm I'm just gonna get my headphones out. Yeah, like, I'm, yeah. I'm jamming, man. Yeah. Like, this is just a job, you know. Right, like right. it's whatever. Like that right. dude is he must have ice in his veins because yeah. he was like, Yeah, this is how it goes, man. This, yeah, this is life. <laughs> Doing the so, nine to five. Absolutely. So he's totally zoned out. And so uh uh Stark, he just walks all the way off into the woods and then he decides to take a pee well he starts to because you can tell he really has to go he starts doing the pee pee dance and then uh the compies the compies start harassing him so immediately he doesn't have to pee anymore so now he's got to fight off these compies and pee and then he ends off like he falls down like um, uh, a hill or whatever and now he's totally alone and turned around because like he doesn't he's right next to carter but he can't see carter now right yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he's uh and that was my question. Why why'd you have to walk so far away? You could still be alive. It's a great question. I, I have an alternative theory that ties into that character because th- when he's like, when uh, Ludlow tells him to watch the camp and then like the heroes come and like Vince Vaughn, like character, like, you know, they, they cause havoc. Yeah. And Ludlow is like, he, I can't remember the line, but basically he's disappointed in Dieter. So I have like this entire theory that Dieter is like a very, very sensitive guy. And he's just really trying to like impress uh, Ludlow and really trying to be a really nice guy. Maybe he's a little shy and that's why he has to walk away to, to pee because he's, you know, he has a little stage fright. So even though he's kind of this bad gruff character, I really think he's a very sensitive character, but his death is, it's pretty like, it feels like you're watching a horror movie at that point, which yeah. happens a lot in Jurassic Park because it's when the copies attack and kill it's it's kind of it's like a horror movie like, yeah like, it's kind of like the gremlins like you're like these little creatures like coming at you it's it's kind of crazy right right uh it's uh copies remind me of coyotes and i'm talking about real life coyotes so yeah. um in the first scene we see a little girl and she finds a copy and then um she has a piece of meat or whatever and feeds a copy and then he goes away and he comes back and he brings his entire clan right <laughs> so the boys are hungry yeah, right so uh what's funny is that real life coyotes kind of have this habit too it, you'll see one of them alone and then um they're kind of following or trailing you or whatever and then you shoo them away so they'll go away and then you turn around next day like like uh, five or six of them right <laughs> And they were there, the copies. I, not, not to go back to that scene, but I, I want to get your thoughts. I always thought it was hilarious that uh, this these bougie people were so bold to literally have lunch on a private island owned by the like the Costa Rican government. Like they made they made they like docked the boat and then somehow got this five star meal with caviar onto this beach. Like, yeah, they deserve to have their kid. Like, and they let their kid wander on this private island. I'm like, yeah, if you're going to be doing that, you kind of deserve it. Yeah. I just thought it was so funny. Like this guy's like, oh, it's okay, honey. You know, (laughs) like, are you sure we can like hang out on this beach? No, 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 it's fine. It's fine. I I know somebody in the Costa Rican government. Yeah, it's totally fine. Yeah. uh, uh, You know, it's just that some people just feel like they can do what they want. And that's that's, that's all it is. And it kind of reminds me of a, like on private islands on like Puerto Rico or Hawaii, there, there's no such thing as a, a private beach on, on the main island. Like, so yeah. 
there are you have a lot of people they'll buy property on on beach they'll buy beachfront property and it's like the most expensive property because it's near the beach but you don't actually own the beach so you're not allowed to block off beach access to yeah. everybody in the island and so that's always been a fight between the people who buy beachfront property and everybody else in the public right so <laughs> so he was on the side of like i don't care like right. they don't own the beach right 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 so um there was also another one uh so there, there's why you got to walk away so far to take a pee and i agree with you i think he was a shot peer he he reminds me <laughs> of he reminds me of uh <laughs> rick from rick and morty yeah so rick he's so shy of using the bathroom he has to go to another dimension <laughs> and another planet to go and use the toilet yes that he jealously guards uh with lasers and projections and everything so I so think, true i think that's start uh and following that uh what you say his name was carter 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 has issues of complications he's one of the first ones to wake up and see a t-rex is harassing them and then uh, they're all trying to run away from the T-Rex. Uh, it's one of my favorite scenes. It's favorite because of how shocking it is. Because the T-Rex stomp on them. It's like, okay, fine. It, it's You kind of normally right. see giant creatures stepping on people, right? But then on the next step, like when he lifts his foot, the dinosaur lifts his foot, and Carter is stuck <laughs> to the bottom yes. of the T-Rex foot. And I was like, and that's that's, that's the horrible part right there. Yeah, that's, that's when it gets you. They that, did that's Carter dirty on that. Right, yeah, right. they did Carter dirty. <laughs> I felt that for Carter at that moment. <laughs> I think it was like twice. It's like he, uh, he's lift the uh, dinosaur lifts up. He's still there. Stomps down, lifts up again. He's still kind of there, and then stomps down, and then finally, uh, he's off the tyrannosaur feet. So yeah, that's that is fascinating. I thought that's one of the one of the best scenes in the movie with that because it, it's a lot of the things. Like even though I, I, it's probably rated PG, Jurassic Park. Yeah, so, I think so. And I think Spielberg did a really great job of like having you know that horrible stuff was act was happening without actually showing it to you like there are only a couple of things like when um i forgot the dude uh, that was trying to help uh malcolm at the extended trailer and he's trying to hook up his truck oh uh, eddie car yeah, yeah yeah and uh, so and the, the two t-rexes grabbed him and but i thought he was going to survive like i forgot this movie so i thought he survived but no he did not survive he he died horribly <laughs> it's i mean it gets torn apart i mean yes. that, it's rough and he's a great he's such a kind character and like yeah. the, the actor play he's from the west wing too which if you've ever seen the west wing like it's like he's a very kind like supportive character like this dude's trying his best to save his friends yeah and like spielberg's like nah yeah you don't make yeah. it you don't so make it he he gets bit in half and so you get to see that it's kind of like silhouetted but you get to see that but then yeah. after that he doesn't he doesn't really show you that like there's one where the uh t-rex catches somebody and starts crunching him and you hear oh the crunch. Yeah, yeah so the crunch makes it horrible you didn't have to see it it was just the crunch or when the copies killed uh i think it was start is that a copies killed him? You just see the blood go down. It's kind of like a classic way of showing death. It's like something that he got out of the 1940s. <laughs> yeah. It, <laughs> he, he brings like Spielberg definitely because this is a sequel and sequels a lot of times are bigger and bolder. Like there's a lot more violence to be honest. Like there's a lot more like kills and violence in this, in this one compared to the first one. Like the stakes are definitely higher, but Spielberg is the master of that and creating right. that tension. And it's all throughout this movie. Right. And another one that I liked was uh, when <laughs> it is kind of a small scene. So this is after they get to the mainland and they're trying to find out this is after the boat 
crashes, which is also a great scene. It's yes. kind of dumb how they kind of just stand there and not do anything, but it is a great scene. How it's like they're calling the boat, and I like how official it sounded. It's like uh, you're you're approaching a dock. So, uh, cut your slow down and cut your mouth. Whatever officially they say it. It's like slow down. You're approaching the dock. Stop. You're approaching the dock. And Stop. it doesn't. The little light keeps coming closer. Then the people are just standing there, and then it crashes into the dock. And um, thankfully, the dock stops the boat. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you know, this running and screaming and everything. And then after the aftermath is one of my favorite scenes when they go into. And it's funny because there's an actor. He plays, I guess, one of the lead security guards. And he's the one that that first entered the boat. And it's the same dude that I've seen in um, the show called uh, How to Get Away with Murder. And then, oh, really? Right. And it's the same dude that's in, he plays a small part in the first Star Trek movie um, when he gets an escape. It's like, that guy just keeps showing up. And then he's like, he's young, obviously, in the Lost World, but he's still young looking. I was like, what? This yeah. guy just doesn't this age. He's doing something right. <laughs> he's doing something right. Well, I already know that he's in extremely good shape because you can tell when you watch How to Get Away with Murder. He's in, like, he looks like John Cena. So he's in extremely yeah. good shape. But it's like, so when I saw him in this scene, I was like, oh my God, it's, it's that guy again. So I don't, <laughs> I don't know him, but he plays a lot of small parts. And um, I'm just surprised at how he didn't age. But anyways, so he goes in there. And uh, he, they, they ask him, so where is the crew? And he looks around and he says, everywhere. So that's another classic. Great, great, great <laughs> one. Now, I want to ask you this question because I have, I have a theory that I want to run by you. So it's kind of this weird gap in, in this film is if the crew were all attacked, but the T-Rex was still in the cage during the time. So what happened? How did the crew all get killed? Did the T-Rex get, get out, eat them, and come back in? Apparently. <laughs> apparently, he was, he, I think what happened was that apparently somehow the T-Rex ran, am, ran amok on the ship. And like he, he went up, up and, you know, eating. And then somehow he ended up back on the elevator. And then uh, got, because the man's severed hand was, that's, <laughs> was still on, on the pressing wheel. the button on you're right stuck on the no not the wheel oh the wheel the, the that, trigger or whatever the, not the trigger that he had a remote control oh yeah the, the door the, the thing yeah. right so he was the dead hand was still closing the door keeping the t-rex from coming back out so i'm guessing that the t-rex probably bit the guy's entire body off except for the hand and then as the elevator was lowering the t-rex ended up on the elevator thing and ended up trap you know we don't see what happened but something it, amazing happened one, yeah it's like it's one of those things where they they set it up and you don't know what's happened but they don't explain it and it, right. it seems but your brain is as the movie's going on you just assume that like something happened terribly. Right, right, but like right. the logistics of doing that on the boat and and maybe the baby dinosaur got out and like attacked right. i have a theory that at someone on that boat took the opportunity they were a serial killer and they said this is perfect i have the best cover ever is a t-rex in uh, finally i could commit all these murders so i think there is a serial killer that committed all these murders blamed on the t-rex jumped off the boat right before it got to the mainland so that's well, my working theory the, he's a horrible uh serial killer only because it's like he just couldn't stab somebody he had to rip their arms off yeah hey, very violent very violent <laughs> right 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 so um yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure, but, you know, when they figure out, it's like, so why is the T-Rex awake? Because, like, why is he, how did this happen? And at first they said, well, they tried to give him uh, 
like a sedative, but it was enough sedative to like to kill uh, an elephant or whatever. And then there's like they they thought it was too much sedative, so they gave him uh, something to wake it up, like to, yeah. not to wake it all the way up, but, but to, to get count- it. Right to counteract the sedative so it didn't die, but it was too much, and now now it's wide awake and it's high on something, and it's just uh, it's there's something in there. <laughs> right, it's right. Not happy. So basically, what he had was a high T Rex wanting to chop everybody <laughs> <laughs> in San Diego. Like, what that? Where am I? So like, they, this is not right. Right. So they they gave that T Rex like cocaine, and uh, it was wilding out on the boat, and then somehow it got itself stuck back in the trap. And it's like, so the team goes in there to try to investigate, try to find out, uh, a what happened to what's the condition of the T Rex or the, and the other animals, and then they see the guy with the with the control for the elevator. And uh, and so so Malcolm was Malcolm sees it, but he doesn't really do anything. And then some other guy goes to touch the controlling. Malcolm goes, no, no, it's too late. Yeah, the warning came too late. It's like you should have taken possession of the arm, Malcolm. You should have yeah, like nobody yeah. touched this. Nobody, nobody touched, touched this, the right? arm. The dead arm. <laughs> Stay away from the dead arm. Please. Right, right. Don't. But it, it was too late. So uh, T Rex runs amok. All all of that is fine. It's like at the, at that point, you could kind of just tune your brain all the way down because it's nothing more to see but a t-rex terrorizing the city and so and all of that is just fun to look at yeah it's a it's a fun sequence and a lot of people say like you know it wasn't necessary to have that element in the movie but it's really fun one of my favorite easter eggs in that sequence is there's a movie a video store uh, and I can't remember exactly what happens, but it's part of the action. But really quickly, you see a couple uh, posters. I don't know if you've, you've ever seen this. They're fake movie posters. I'm going to read them out the titles. It's King Lear, which is a Shakespeare movie starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jack and the Beanstalk starring Robin Williams, and a movie called Tsunami Sunrise starring Tom Hanks. So that was, again, Spielberg's having fun yeah. messing around. Uh, with actors that he's worked with, uh, and just and just having a fun time in, right. in the sequence. I I actually saw that. I was gonna um put that in a in a what did I call it trivia section, but I chose not to. But since you brought it up, do you know where the Schwarzenegger King Lear poster is referencing? No, I I don't. So there's a little movie that Arnold Schwarzenegger did called The Last Action Hero. Oh, <laughs> so in that movie. In case for members of my audience who did not tune into that episode, in this movie, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger plays a character named Jack Slater. Jack Slater is this kid's favorite action hero. So, and this kid knows that Jack Slater is played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. He goes into the movie to watch the Jack Slater movie. He gets a chance to see the latest Jack Slater film that hasn't been released to the public. So what happens that this kid gets this magic ticket the magic ticket pushes him into the film. So now he's in the Jack Slater movie world. And now uh, he's being shot at with Jack Slater uh, and Jack Slater's going on these fantastical adventures in the movie. Meanwhile, the kid is trying to convince Jack Slater that he, this whole world isn't real and that he is a character in the movie. Obviously, Jack Slater doesn't believe him. One of the things they do, they go to the... No, actually, uh, what happens is that the kid... He's watching the movie, uh, the trailers that come before the feature. So, and one of the trailers, it's a, 
it's Arnold Schwarzenegger as King Lear. <laughs> oh my and gosh, that's, that's so deep. That's that's where the poster comes from. Oh my so, <laughs> gosh, I love that. that right, it's amazing. I never knew that. Right, uh, and that it's a fun movie. That it, it at the time it was basically a bomb, and uh, there were a lot of people that uh, kind of panned it. But it's really a fun movie to watch. It's just uh, and. It's like it's a movie within a movie. So the first movie yeah. is the kid inside or the Jack Slater fictional movie. And then the second part of the movie is Jack Slater and the kid. And one of Jack Slater's bad guys is brought into the real world, the kid's world. And now they've got to stop the bad guy from like bringing Dracula and uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, the guy with the claws, <laughs> that Nightmare on Elm Street guy. Oh, Freddy, Freddy. Freddy. Yeah. Stop, stop that bad guy from bringing other bad guys like that into the real world and causing havoc. So yeah, that's, it's a, uh, so that's what that poster specifically was referencing. That's amazing. I love the deep <laughs> reference within yeah. the, the reference, right. Within right. the movie. It's like right. five layers of meta. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, yeah, I think there were a couple other things. I'm, I may have written them down. I don't remember. Um, and also um uh, another thing I like about this movie was that how in the first movie, he was just kind of like acting like uh, a predator, right? He's just roaring and chasing and trying to chomp. But in this movie, both T-Rexes are are angry and vengeful, like the entire yes. time. Yes. It's like they they tried to disturb my baby. Now I am going to go after these little creatures, these, these tiny little uh, uh, apes. I'm going to go after these tiny little apes and I'm just going to harass them for the entire movie. It's like every time I see one of these apes, I'm going to chop them. I don't, I'm not even hungry. I'm just going <laughs> to, I'm going to, I'm them. going in I'm for just, the kill. It's, right, yeah, right. It has just, nothing to do. It, and that's, that goes to the, a lot of the monster movie tropes. Like, you know, you go, you go back to jaws. Like a lot of people have not seen the jaws sequels, which is there's, there's a good reason not to see them, but there's kind of a, this idea of that. How can an animal be vengeful? Right. Uh, and definitely we see the vengeance come through the human characterization on these animals that, you know, animals could have maybe that those those mannerisms are being vengeful. But unless we like have a human conversation with them, we don't know if it's our version of vengeful, the, our humanization version of vengeful. Right. Uh, but they definitely are vengeful against the entire <laughs> yeah. city of san diego right, right. and here, here's the thing as we learn more about animals we're starting to understand that they some of them can have these feelings like in particular crows or uh, birds like crows in that same family so crows can recognize different people so they mm -hmm. recognize people who have harassed them and they'll tell all their other crows friends they recognize human faces and so they're angry uh with humans and then they also recognize people who have been nice to them so if you're nice to crows they'll actually remember you and then there are studies of crows and wolves and crows will form a friendship with wolves and they'll team up and they'll hunt right so that's crazy they'll form partnerships and then there's a comment in this movie in particular where they say you know humans are the only creatures that hunt for fun but that's not true uh you have killer whales who used to be called whale killers because they actually go out and hunt and kill blue whales. This is the first time recently for the first time we've seen them hunt and kill uh, a blue whale. And they're like pretty much the only animals that will do that. Uh, orcas are, there's a uh, YouTube guy that I watch. I forgot his name. Maybe I'll put his uh, info in the show notes. Uh, I think his name is Ndiame, but uh, I watch a lot of his videos. So I like watching his videos because he refers to orcas as uh 
what you, like uh homicidal dolphins because <laughs> <laughs> he, he calls them uh it's amazing he calls them homicidal dolphins oreo dolphins because uh killer whales are actually in the dolphin family and so killer whales will like through his videos i've learned that killer whales will kill just for fun they'll take a seal and they'll tail slap the seal like high up in the air basically until they get tired of slapping the seal and then they'll let it go or they'll chase down a seal on uh on land like they'll they'll force their bodies on land just to attack the seal and then kill it and then leave it alone right like like not even to eat it right (laughs) that's crazy uh and also dolphins in general have a rape culture so (laughs) then they they also have um masturbatory habits so yeah it's so they they do there are a lot of there's there's those things in animals that's funny you bring up orcas because like not to get into like the whole sea world debate but it's funny because the whole business reason of bringing a dinosaur to san diego was well it worked for sea world because we brought orcas and put them in a basically a big tank right so it's it's interesting that you bring that up that the orcas have those behaviors because that's what they were trying to replicate with in this film in Jurassic right, Park. Right, right. And so it's not far-fetched. I don't think that it's far-fetched that a dinosaur would have a, a hateful, vengeful uh behavior towards creatures that try that try to harm it, like when it was well, harmed the most vulnerable of its uh of its family. So yeah, it was and I, I kind of enjoyed seeing that. It, it kind of made for a uh, uh comedic or um not not necessarily slapstick, but it, it was funny to me. Right, it was it was kind of is uh, kind of a, a comedic turn for the series for me. How the dinosaurs just kept coming back and harassing the people. Yeah, especially at the end when uh, Ludlow gets eaten by the baby dinosaur. You know, like the mom is like, "Go ahead and take out your vengeance against this this uh, American or British businessman who's caused <laughs> us all our havoc. Go ahead and just enjoy." I like I liked how in shock he was. Like after the attack, he basically was done as a functioning oh, yeah. person so he's just walking around in shock trying to find a baby dinosaur and it's like the tyrannosaur was just doing what mother animals do there's like it like i i crippled this creature so that you can learn how to hunt right mm-hmm, so you mm-hmm. hunt you learn how to attack and eat this creature it's just, you're growing up it's time that you learn how to be like me and so you can hunt your own food right <laughs> and here you go this trembling right. businessman. Right, right, Perfect. right. So any, any other parts that you want to point out that you really like? I think that's it. I think f- just to promote this movie more, if you haven't seen it or if you haven't seen it in a long time, it is a fun ride and it's uh, an exciting extension of this franchise. And I think it will help prepare you for, for the Dominion and what's upcoming because, like I said earlier, we're going to see a lot of dinosaurs interacting with humans in a human space. So we're going to see this theme of having a T-Rex in a city or having a raptor in a city or having a stegosaurus in like someone's backyard. Uh, so yeah. it's going to be a theme that is going to come back again this summer with Jurassic Park or Jurassic World Dominion. So I right. think wow, this is a great rewatch leading up to the new movie. Right, right. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So let's head on to our trivia section. And um, this is stuff that is, I just got off from INDB, as our audience knows. It's like uh, my go-to place for trivia. I like that it, it, it seems like they go, they scour the internet and they get all of the neat trivia. And now it's not always accurate, but 
it's it's my go-to. It's source. usually pretty good. Yeah, yeah, it's usually pretty good. So uh Julianne Moore admitted that she did this movie to pay off a divorce settlement and to work with Steven Spielberg. So I'm thinking she's that, being honest. <laughs> I don't know. I think she's kind of finagling it a little bit. Uh, maybe it's because this is not the type of movie that she normally does. No. But at, at the same time, I feel like because the movie was not critically loved, this is kind of what she would kind of throw out. It's like, yeah. well, yeah, I knew it was bad. It's like, no, you didn't. <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> you wouldn't you, have said this if it was a, no. a huge hit, right? Yeah. Two models of the T-Rex each weighed nine tons, which is crazy. Uh, due to their weight, the crew constructed sets around them rather than moving them onto sets. Yeah, these 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 animatronic T-Rexes were, uh, if you watch any of the behind the scenes stuff, there was so much work putting into them. The materials they were made out of were really sensitive. Uh, so if they got wet, uh, they would they would have to dry it off. Uh, I don't know if it was this movie or the last movie, but they were they would have to like basically anytime there was rain involved in the shot, they would have to come and dry them off. These huge animatronics, it's just amazing. Wow, that's crazy. I hope they've improved on making it waterproof. I think right? they have. They have. They have improved the material. <laughs> right. So, director Steven Spielberg had to attain an early screening for Swingers 1996 in order to give approval for use of the Jaws 1975 theme. He was so impressed by Vince Vaughn that he offered him a part in this movie. And I thought that Vince Vaughn did an incredibly, I've always liked Vince Vaughn, you know, for all of his, you know, his personal uh, faults or whatever. Like there are some people who didn't enjoy working famously with Vince Vaughn, but I don't think he, that he's, engages in bad behavior it's just that there's certain people that don't like his style his, his attitude acting. style right right i, I right. don't necessarily love his attitude and style but i respect the amount of work he's done it it is interesting because spielberg was looking for like the next big hit in hollywood right. now you could debate whether he was like the next dicaprio <laughs> right. or next you know wh whoever but uh he was he ended up being a big star so spielberg was on the right track um, this movie was a, uh, the record opening, uh, biggest opening weekend in history from May 97 until November 2001 when it was surpassed by Harry Potter. So, uh, again, huge commercial hit that stood the test of time. Right. Absolutely. It's like you, you wonder why they keep making sequels. There's your answer. There right you go. There. Right. The T-Rex can be seen scratching its head in a direct homage to the stop motion T-Rex scratching its head in King Kong 1933, one of Steven Spielberg's favorite movies growing up. Yep. So uh, I missed that part. I was looking for that part, and I was. I'm gonna so, have to rewatch it to look right, for it. Right, now. right, right. Because it doesn't say. Oh, it does say. I, I didn't. You can go and look it up on IMDb, but it does say exactly at what time this event happens. So, uh, but yeah, he's he's paying homage to his favorite movies. The SS Venture, which transports the T Rex to San Diego, is a reference to King Kong again in the 1933 version, uh, who transported the. Uh, uh, King Kong to New, uh, to New York City on a ship called the SSF, SS Venture. So a replication of that same transporting the 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 or the large animal to the mainland. Um, this is the second reference to the classic movie. Um, the gate from the first movie was actually modeled after the Skull Island gate, which is very obvious, very iconic. And, and Dr. Ian Malcolm points that out. Right, right. Oh, he points it out in the movie, I think. Yeah. Yeah, right, right. So... Oh, shoot. I went too far. I went too far. All right. The title of the novel was simply The Lost World, with the cover sh showing the familiar Jurassic Park logo to establish it as the sequel. However, the studio feared that the public might confuse it with the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle classic of the same title, 
The title and main of the plot elements were indeed deliberate references by Michael Crichton the and originally considered naming the movie The Lost Island. In the end, the novel's title was kept, but Jurassic Park was appended to solidify the sequel connection. Yep. Hence yeah. Lost World colon Jurassic Park. <laughs> right, right, right. There is roughly 50% more dinosaur action in this movie than Jurassic Park, which I didn't know if there was an official percentage, but I would agree. There's a lot more action. It's a sequel. It's funny that they didn't put it in the trailer. I can I feel like it could have been something like the lost world, Jurassic Park, now with 50% more dinosaur. 50% action. more action. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Initially, Steven Spielberg wanted to save the San Diego sequence for a third movie. However, he later decided to include it in this movie after realizing that he would probably not direct another installment in the franchise. Yeah, which makes Correct. sense why he was so excited about it. And it also makes sense why it's a little out of place in this movie as a, for the third act, which mm -hmm. kind of makes sense. Uh, the vocalizations for the juvenile T-Rex were of a baby camel crying for its mother. Oh, <laughs> the sound made by the baby stegosaurus were taken from a rhinoceros. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, the, vo the vocalization of the Parasuropolis, I cannot pronounce that dinosaur name, <laughs> were created from cows calling through the tubes. I told you I can't do the names. It's, it's funny, right? Because uh, that's the same one. I think that was the the crone head one of the headed creatures yeah. I, don't, I don't know if it's the butt head or the, the pompadour, <laughs> butt head. Head. pompadour uh, head yeah but uh i would have to study this name in order to pronounce it parasaurolophus i, I guess yeah parasaurolophus that's yeah. probably right so cows calling through tubes that okay that's fine <laughs> the screech by the pteranodon makes it the screech that the pteranodon makes at the end was made by gary's rye storm slowing down the sound of him taking out dental flaws from his box okay i can see that so he took these a guys box. are having fun these right. guys have a lot a lot of fun you could tell like they're, they're coming up with the noises it's it's right. amazing the sound engineers are magic writer david cope said that when he was writing the script for this movie uh, he he taped a fan letter next to his, or he saw a fan letter next to his computer screen the letter was from a viewer um, from Jurassic park who complained that he waited too long to show the dinosaurs. Yeah, this is a very wide known kind of story that <laughs> that people wanted to see the dinosaurs early. Right. And, and, uh, and they did. Right. In the very first scene, you have a dinosaur and they yeah. kind of teased you. So that was kind of a cute way of teasing people about the dinosaurs. They showed the little the coffee dinosaurs who attacked the little girl. That's very classic, very classic horror movie thing. In the early drafts of the script, Lex, Ariana Richards and Tim Joseph Mazzello were kept in for much longer. Some even had the kids going back to the park and encountering the dinosaurs again. So these, yeah. these were the original kids from Jurassic Park, but they only had them in for uh, one of the earlier scenes in the movie. But yeah, basically Easter egg, which I think was fine. It was a nice little nod, but they, they didn't necessarily need to be in the story. So I think that was the right choice. Right. If you, if you look closely, the face of the male T-Rex is adorned with many facial scars and many of the teeth in his mouth are missing or broken. This is indicative towards the Rex participating in fights for mating rights or dominance. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, a lot of that going on in the animal kingdom. Oh, yeah. As, especially with some particular animals, uh, like, oh, I can't, I think they're walruses. 
uh, have yes, this thing yeah. where male robbers uh, fight off all the other male robbers, and he gets to have his. He basically he he has sex with all the females in, in the area, and uh, and he's the stud, right? He's the stud, and then all of the lesser robbers like they're they're out. It's like they're they're not having any sex, so they go out and rape all the animals that are smaller than they are. So <laughs> it's it's the animal kingdom is brutal. It yeah, is brutal. Yeah. It's it's crazy. So it, uh. Oh, that it's your your turn. My bad. I think, oh, did I skip? Did I skip one? See, there, there. Oh, it's probably my fault. My fault. It's it's me. It's my turn. I'm looking at it it's like, oh no, wait. I'm supposed to read that part. So Joe Johnston lobbied for the director's job, but schedule problems during the post production of Jumundi from 1995 forced him out. Steven Spielberg was also adamant to direct this sequel himself, promising Johnston. The director's chair for the third movie, which he directed. So yeah, mm-hmm. it worked out. Everybody's happy. <laughs> yeah. If you want to learn more about Joe Johnson and Jurassic Park Three, which is a very interesting behind the scenes, listen to the podcast Stuck on Sorna, which is, it's a behind the scenes of making of the third movie, which is very different than this movie and the first movie. Ah. Uh, so it's it's a very interesting behind the scenes. And Joe Johnson is a key figure. Uh, in 1995, director Steven Spielberg at Vanessa Chester. At the premiere of A Little Princess in 95, in which she appeared, Chester later recalled, as I was signing the autograph for him, he told me one day he'd put me in a, in a film. Spielberg met with Chester the following year to discuss the movie before ultimately casting her as Malcolm's daughter, Kelly. I have not seen A Little Princess, so I can't, I can't remember that. <laughs> neither, neither have I, but um, I'm glad that's a very fun story. Where, you yeah, know, it's, it's yeah. really cute. It's like you see that as a trope in other movies, especially movies about Hollywood or movies about making Hollywood film. And this was like something that actually came true, right? Where it actually yeah. happened where a director sees a promising young actress or actor and then promises them that they'll be in a film. And then them actually following through with that with a, a prominent role, not just like a walk one part. So that that's pretty amazing that that happened. I hope that it's true. <laughs> I hope so too. It's very Steven Spielberg. That's a very cute Steven Spielberg story, which there's a lot of them, especially with kid actors. Right. So Roland Tempo, who played uh, played by Pete Postlewaite, did I get that right that time? Oh, I think that's close as close as we're gonna get. <laughs> uh, refers to the Tyrannosaurus Rex as the greatest predator that ever, that ever lived. While the Jurassic Park movies depict the T-Rex as an active hunter, the question whether the T-Rex was a predator or a poacher slash scavenger has been and still is the subject of a decades-long debate. Mm-hmm. Supporters of the poacher-scavenger theory maintain that a T-Rex arms were too short to hold down a prey and that it would not have been able to run as fast as its prey due to its bulk. Additionally, its excellent sense of smell would serve to sniff an already dead prey over long large distances supporters of the predator theory point out the fact that the t-rex had depth perception a trait seen mainly in predators so that they can estimate the distance to their prey also fossilized skeletons of other dinosaurs have found with huge bite marks from t-rexes on them when uh which would indicate that a t-rex had hunted them while they were alive rather than dead and i think it's actually kind of closer to the hyena the hyena does like all of that. It yeah. uh, it scavenges prey that uh, that are like near death. It tries to steal prey from lions. It uh, it's 
it, it's uh, they do a combination of things to get their food. Yeah. And they talk about it more in the books of that theory. And that theory is more debated in the books. So we'll maybe never know. We'll never know. Right, uh, right. <laughs> Steven Spielberg confessed that during the production, he became increasingly disenchanted with this movie, admitting, I beat myself up, growing more and more impatient with myself. It made me wistful about doing a talking picture because sometimes I got this feeling I was just making this big silent roar movie. I found myself saying, is that all there is? It's not enough for me. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, he, he this was a kind of this point in his career where Spielberg had done it all. Mm-hmm. Um, I always say that 1993 was the peak, not in the sense that he's done lesser films, but where Steven Spielberg was at his best because within 1993, he made Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. So two of like the, the almost opposite movies as far as style of movies, but two movies that show how good he is as a director. Like this guy's getting bored with making one of the biggest blockbusters, you know, in history Uh, that goes to show how skilled he is. I think that he was yearning for a more human connection. And, and this, I feel like from his perspective, this movie kind of lacks that. Like, like I think a a lot of, uh, well, I don't know what the actual complaints were about the lost world, but I think what it was is that, uh, like I said earlier, it doesn't have the same depth as some of the yeah. other movies. So I think that's what this movie was lacking for him. So there were there was a special gadget developed for the movie, strobe lights in the theater. The theaters had to install strobe lights on the wall and the projectionists had to put some metal markers on the film itself whenever there was a flash in the movie that triggered the lights in the audience the problem there isn't a single flash in the whole movie so after having installed a very expensive system there was actually no correct moment to put the mark uh to to put in the markers and their despair they put the markers somewhere during the storm scenes that result in either a cascade of strobes or almost none at all so it was a different experience of watching it in different theaters the audience was warned in advance that there were strobe lights in the performance so it's like you know it's you, you guys are doing too much you're making a movie just, just yeah movie. this is feels like the era of the 4d experience where theaters were trying to do different things to make films more engaging especially big blockbuster films uh but this seems ridiculous. I, I mean, again, we don't know if this was one theater or a theater chain or maybe one in L.A. that was trying to test something out. Obviously, they didn't think it through. Right, right. Uh, yeah. It's curious that Roland wishes to hunt the male buck dinosaurs when the female are actually larger, like we talked about earlier. This could possibly stem from the fact that Roland is a professional hunter and a sport hunting. Um, the males usually be the prize uh, for its size and adornment. Um, Roland may have not known that the female holds uh, a larger size. Again, like you talked about, he doesn't really know much. He's just like driving into this world because he just wants, he just assumes that the male T-Rex is bigger, right. which again ties to his character arc at the end where he like, he got educated. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and he was like, dang, I don't want to be doing this anymore. Right. And in this film, it seems like the male and female were roughly the same size. Like if they were larger, they weren't that much larger. Yeah. Right. So it's not, not a huge, it's not like certain spiders or praying mantises or anything like that. So uh, as of 2016, this is the only sequel that Steven Spielberg has directed that is not related to the Indiana Jones film franchise. 
Yeah, and I think that's that's hold the test of time. I don't think he has done uh, a, a a sequel of his own film. That, right, right. That is done. So it, it it is a kind of iconic in that that sense that this is Steven Spielberg's only sequel outside of Indiana Jones, which is cool. Uh, the reason that the Stegosaurus being in this movie became was because of Steven Spielberg. This is a very very famous story. Uh, he received thousands of fan letters from kids inquiring why the Stegosaurus was absent in the first movie. The Stegosaurus is the, for, for listeners, the dinosaur that kind of has like a hump back with like these plates almost like in, in the back. Um, uh, conceptual artist for the first three movies, uh, Mark uh, Crash McCreary had previously expressed in Jurassic Park Tops trading cards uh, his regret that the Stegosaurus was not among the dinosaurs that appeared in Jurassic Park. As Colin Wilson recalled, Stephen made that his mission to come up with a really good Stegosaurus sequence. That's that first sequence when they get on the island. This is the first dinosaurs we see. This is a pretty famous uh, story in the Jurassic Park world, but I think it's really cool to see the power of fans not tweeting, writing letters. Right, right, right. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, because the Stegosaurus is like, whenever you think about dinosaurs and older media uh it's always almost always been prominently featured it's it's like uh it's one of the dinosaurs that they chose in the transformers Mm -hmm. (laughs) they had a yeah it was uh the t-rex the triceratops and the stegosaurus and then later on they added uh oh no the the brontosaurus later on they added the stegosaurus and a pteranodon but yeah it was uh and that was kind of a, a thrilling sequence that they had. It's, it's also one of my favorites that we hadn't talked about. And it's like, uh, ostensibly, Malcolm goes there to rescue his girlfriend, and his girlfriend almost gets paled by a stegosaurus spike. So, you know, not not a particularly good rescuer. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Uh, and lastly, I have, and this is one of my, my favorite bits of trivia, the spikes at the end of the stegosaurus tail is called a thagomizer. The arrangement of spikes had no distinct name until a 1982 far side cartoon by gary larson coined the term wow i did not know it that is a that is a great tidbit so have you ever seen a gary larson cartoon yes yes right so uh but i did not know that that's where the yeah that part of the stegosaurus tale came from right and uh and the funny thing is that i forgot why he got came up with the idea but basically the cartoon is like a group of scientists they're pointing at a stegosaurus tail and the scientist says, this is what we call a thagomizer, right? <laughs> and it's because A, it had no distinct name and B, it sounded so ridiculous that why, yeah. not, why not call it a thagomizer? So, uh, and you, you gave a pretty apt description of a stegosaurus, uh, uh, basically a, a lizard with a giant humpback with plates on its back, like Godzilla. And then at the end of the stegosaurus tail are these spikes that just stick out. And it was just fascinating <laughs> that, a dinosaur will have these spikes the thagomizer right 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 and then there's another there's a similar dinosaur i don't think it has plates but it does have like a it has a tail and the end of its tail is like a club right so and oh yeah 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 so uh nice nice evolutionary uh which uh evolutionary turns i guess so um that is the end of all the trivia we have and uh next we're going to talk about uh, the critical scores. I was going to write out what the critics thought, but totally flew over me. So that's my fault. So, you know, you can imagine that this, uh, what critics think about this movie is available. I promise that I will have uh, what critics think for the next movie in the next episode. But for right now, we're just going to give you the critical scores of what they had on Rotten Tomatoes. The critics gave it a 
53%, and the audience gave it a 51%. So in spite of it having this blockbuster, uh, having made a blockbuster amount of money, like millions and millions of dollars, having quad, quad, <laughs> I don't want to say quadruple because that's the wrong answer. It weighed way more money than its huge. budget. Yeah, huge, huge. huge. It was $600 million worldwide. Uh, the, uh, the critics and audience, they basically gave it a middling score. And IMDb reviews gave it a 6.6 .6 out of 10. So yeah, not not particularly great. Which I think is the IMDb one I agree with a little bit more. They actually on the uh, Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong podcast, which basically they go back at the, on the old films because Rotten Tomatoes is an aggregator. So they're taking reviews from 97 and trying to aggregate them to the score. But they have a podcast where they like review if Rotten Tomatoes is wrong. And they did this film and there was kind of a consensus that 53 is very low yeah. for this film, which I think I think it is. Like I, I think it's a much like if you look at blockbusters, uh, there's a lot worse blockbusters that spent this much money that flopped. Right, uh, right, right. So to me, it's 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 much higher. It's not a perfect movie by any means, but it's gonna be closer to the 6.6 .6 or the seven <laughs> out of ten, or I think it should be at least 60 to 70 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Right, right, right. So uh well, that's that's it. We we've gotten through it finally the lost world jurassic park is as of this recording available for free on hbo max and the next next up you have next week uh we're going to have a special guest jonesy and he has the weird af news.com and uh he is going to be joining us next week so for one last time, if you like this show, then please help us grow. To do this, you can subscribe to our show, rate us, or write a review on Spotify, SpotChaser.com, or Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. And don't be too shy to share our show with someone. Don't forget, you can contact us with any questions, comments, or, suggest or suggestions at fanmail at backlookcinema.com. Do you have any additional plugs you want to make? Uh Go uh, to Jurassic World Dominion so we can have more sequels because that's all, apparently the only way to do it. But, uh, thank you, uh, Zoe. I appreciate it. I love the show. I love the family aspect of the show. I think it's great. It's a lot of fun. So thanks for having me on. Thank you very much. I appreciate you coming on. I'm glad you came. Uh, and it's, it's fun to have someone that is so passionate about uh, any particular movie franchise, particularly Jurassic Park. Like I said, you probably was able to, like I had to do a rewatch, but you was probably able to come right on without having to do any rewatch because it's right in your head already. It's like all the aspects and details of the film, you've already got it programmed it in. So it was awesome having you on to talk about The Lost World. So I just want to say to our, our audience, um, just support your favorite shows. Believe me, it matters. Be safe. Share a movie with yesteryear with someone in your family and hug your loved ones and be outstanding.